I am going to turn off my phone. <laughs> what the? Okay. <laughs> Just a minute. Sorry, it's taking. Are we live? Are we live no, yet? yet? Not yet. Oh, now we're live. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry about the delay, everyone. Um, mm -hmm. glad you could make it. I should probably turn up that overlay. Yeah, that's up there. Here, I'll turn it off. Okay. okay. No, I meant this because it's kind of, no. it's not bad. Uh, anyways, hi everyone and welcome to uh, M4G Advocacy Media. You're watching the Under the Surface series and today we're discussing authenticity. We want to take some time to unpack that. And um, I guess, uh, Crystal, you want to start? Yeah, we were, we were just discussing right before this how different people are different levels when it comes to this. And it takes a lot of patience and understanding the situations they've been in and the environment they've been in to understand their perception of what they might understand about what authenticity is. And uh, before we get right into it, uh, for the sake of our blind or low vision um, uh, audience, I'm Mark. I'm a brown man, black and white beard, blue t-shirt today. I'm bald in front of a brown background. And I'm Crystal. I have on a tan and brown shirt with flowers. I have brown hair and brown eyes and a brown background. <laughs> Oh, I'm Anne, and um, I'm providing contrast to all that brown. <laughs> I have you. gray hair, by golly. <laughs> and um, um, I also have a bright red dot in the middle of my forehead um, from when I was trying to set things down in the bottom of a closet and bonked oh, no. my forehead <laughs> on the corner of a basket. Who knew that the corner of the basket was made out of a metal piece? Yeah, so it looks like I tried to drill my forehead. Yeah, well, there. Yes. Well, that's thanks. thanks for that introductory <laughs> bit of authenticity. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm really bad at this. I'm, I'm really bad for that too. I'll, I'll bend down to grab something or under a counter and forget that I have a head attached to my body. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then bonk my head on something. There we go. Yeah. So we're, we're sister and brother under the surface, right? Yeah. It's, I go. mean, we can't all be gifted athletically and coordination wise, you know? <laughs> As that's true. As much as we try to fool ourselves with boxing and all that. <laughs> yep, that's right. Yeah. Now I have a feeling Crystal does not go around bonking herself in the head. Oh my goodness! Do you have basic <laughs> awareness of, of the space you take up? 
Oh, goodness. Just this morning, I'm trying to figure out this whole standing frame desk thing uh -huh. and uh, figure out the side of it is like for a mouse, right? So it uh -huh. turns up and down, it flips. Uh -huh. And yeah, I was trying to put something on it to clamp it down because it keeps, it wouldn't do, it won't do what it's supposed to. So uh, yeah, I wound up hitting my head because I misjudged the distance, so yeah. Oh my, all right, well now I have to admit I'm surprised Yeah. because you, you seem like you are very aware of surroundings. Normally, yes, but this yeah, morning I, I was having a very bad morning as far as like oh. just other medical things and stuff like that, so. That's so funny. <laughs> I'm not surprised. But generally for if we're both cognizant and have all our faculties, she's generally more aware of things where whether I I'm just kinda I don't know. <laughs> I should be a bit a bit for a bit of a space case as far as yeah, that goes. Me yeah. too. Yeah. Me too. People have spent my entire life um saying Curb coming, step up, don't, yes. don't yeah. fall over this. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. My my uh, mom always refers to me the the absent-minded professor. Yeah, like in a lot of ways, I'm really smart, uh -huh. but some ways, it's like this. <laughs> it's true. Like, it's true. That's adorable. <laughs> Yeah. My dad was that way. My sister is that way, and I'm that way. So, yeah. 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 Thank God for the crystals of this world who keep us in balance and most of the time notice what they're doing. Most yeah. of the time. Most of the time it works, but other times it, it's out of my control. <laughs> <laughs> True. Oh, well. Um, we should probably go ahead and start with the topic, I think. Um, all right, uh, let me, okay. So we started by, uh, we want to start this talk as with, like we do with the other ones is unpack the, or talk about the definition a bit. And the definition of authenticity is someone, um, is uh, worthy of acceptance or belief as conforming to or based on fact. The word authenticity is the state of something being authentic, legitimate, or true. And we just want to start with that as a basis for the discussion uh, today, just so we can um, get everyone on board and uh, and we're pretty sure all of us are on the same page but we just <laughs> well, for sure yeah <laughs> just want to make sure everyone else knows what we're talking about because uh you know it's a tricky thing it sounds like a uh it sounds like a fairly basic concept okay just just be who you are but um, there's 
a lot of subtlety and unconscious programming within culture and our society and everything that causes us to not be true to that because we're trying to um, we're trying to keep people on their side and not and gain their approval or their acceptance. Right. Um, what the, what do you two have to say about that? I think a lot of um, of our reactions tend to be fear-based rather than faith-based. And um, so we try to avoid trouble or we, f we try to avoid changes in relationships by um, minimizing the changes that have been taking place, for example, in us. Now, just to give you an example, um, I am a rock steady boxing instructor as well as someone with Parkinson's disease. And one of our students is very athletic. I mean, when the rest of us are doing modified versions of jumping jacks or push-ups, he's doing the real thing. And he's always been very athletic. That's always been very um, basic to who he was. And then he developed Parkinson's. And he's still wonderfully athletic. But he had not told anyone outside of the family, his family, um, that he had Parkinson's because, hello, because um, he did not want for their opinion of him to change. And he didn't want to let go of the athleticism as a very basic part of his, um, his sense of who he was. And then a few weeks ago, he came up to me and he said, I have a friend with cancer. She has stage four cancer. I'm going to tell her about my Parkinson's so she knows she's not alone in having something that she's struggling with. And he told her and both of them cried. And it, it was so touching to me to see how this person seemed to have this energy that was released in him by accepting the fact that yes, he is still athletic, but he is also a still athletic person who has Parkinson's disease. And that is also part of his story and by sharing it with such love and such courage he could make it go from being a bother or an undermining of who he was to being sort of a a superpower you know it gave him the ability to reach out to someone he may not have reached out to with the same kind of courage yeah it just made me so thrilled for him and for his friend yes thank you for sharing that that's very relevant to being yeah. authentic in any situation yeah definitely i think uh i guess i had the wrong browser so i had to download oh no <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. thank you for joining us. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Let me see. Uh, Catherine, we we went through our visual descriptions for our blind and low vision people. Do you want to cover that? Sure. So I am a, uh, I guess I'm middle-aged. <laughs> I'm a middle-aged female uh, with a green background, kind of like a green uh, kind of vest and then a gray shirt underneath it. Um, I am white, but pretty white. Uh, you know, some people have a tan and things going on. I do not. And I have uh, dark rim glasses and, and uh, hoop earrings. And then I have like dark hair, even though I'm starting to get some white in there. So that's, um, that's what I look like. My name is Catherine Yoder. I'm the executive director of the Adult Advocacy Center. So. Nice. We we our work centers around crime victims with disabilities. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. Um, thanks for sharing that anecdote, Anne. You know, I think. Uh, I mean, I can't speak for everyone. I can speak from my experience, though, and uh, you know, it's it's difficult. It's as someone who was engaged in like boxing and martial arts, maybe more athletic pursuits, to all of a sudden be losing your abilities gradually, right? Yeah. And I, one thing that I've learned, which I don't always get perfect, but I try to focus on is, you know, that person who used to fight really hard in the gym to do what he or she thought was they were capable of. Um, that's just a physical manifestation of courage, but they can still have that courage like your your friend did in seeing that they didn't they didn't have to share that personal thing with someone else, but having the courage to do it, even though it felt uncomfortable, it's mm -hmm. the same mentality. It's not necessarily physically boxing, but it's it's punching some invisible demon in the face, <laughs> right? It's true. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And it's fighting fighting against fear which is what we've got to do to be authentic anyways. All right. And Catherine, uh, I'm glad you're here too, because I imagine that in your scope of work that you see a lot of people, like I don't know how much you've watched of what we already talked about, but we were discussing how do, uh, do, depending on your background and what your motives are and stuff like that and understanding of the world, you know, and um, your environment too, um, and your perception of things that causes you to be unauthentic, you know, and I'm sure that, and also it deals with you know, there's different levels of it and what you are able to understand. So um, I'm sure you see a lot of that 
Yeah, I mean, I think the ironic thing really is I probably interact with people when they're most authentic. Um, because a lot of times once somebody is the victim of a crime. Oh yeah. Cause you do the stuff before that, right? Yeah. And we do like the forensic interview. So a lot of times we have a really unique, um, kind of, uh, role in that we, a lot of times interact with people at their Mm -hmm. most authentic selves. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, everything else is kind of stripped away and you really get to the, to who the person mm-hmm. is. And, and I think the problem with being authentic is that there's a level of vulnerability mm-hmm. that comes along with it. And people, you know, usually do not want to place themselves necessarily in a role that's going to be, um, where they're going to purposely feel vulnerable. Um, I know for myself, one of the aspects I've kind of struggled with um, with, with the whole notion of being authentic is that we're taught from a really early age that we have to kind of make up for whatever deficiencies are there mm-hmm. from our disability, you know, like for mm-hmm. me, it's autism. And so it's like, you know, all my quirks and all of my, you know, social awkwardness, my entire life was spent trying to assimilate into mm-hmm. the way that it was supposed to be, you know, socially acceptable. And I think right. really everybody um, who has a disability can relate to that to some extent that, you know, unfortunately, it's so interesting because we live in such a really creative society, but people can't reimagine disability. You can't, you know, you don't see somebody with a disability playing a non-disabled role on TV, you know, or, or anything like that. It, it's disability is really even limiting for people, you know, as far as how they imagine things. Um, and so for me, that's been a big thing with the uh, authenticity is really even kind of look, you know, I know that I've done it this way for a period of time, but why am I doing it this way? Is it, is this the way I want to do it? Or is this the way I've been told I'm supposed to do it? Um, And so I think part of that, you know, authenticity also comes from a way that there are a bunch of different paths that you can take to get to the same destination. Um, And sometimes not taking the most traditional one or doing it in your own way. Um, is still going to get you to that destination. But, you know, authentic is really what it means to you. Like for me, it's really kind of being who I am supposed to be instead of who I feel like everyone else wants me to be. And that's something I think that we all really struggle with, um, whether it's through religion, whether it's through disability, whether it's through all of that. It's a lot of times, you know, we're constantly trying to evolve into this, standard um, that we didn't really create. And I don't really think if we think about it, we actually want to be a part of, but um, that's just kind of, you know, the way that things have been set up. But I think a big thing is you're finding a lot of people my age and older who, you know, have kind of grown up during, you know, this, this period of time and are kind of reaching a point in their lives when they're looking at authenticity and kind of like, who am I? Um, outside of all these different roles like mother or leader or disability advocate, you know, because it's so easy to kind of lose yourself in the work um, and just in all the other roles you have in your life. That's a good point. I'm going to have to be authentic and feed this cat or he's going to destroy everything in the room. 
He'll excuse me just a minute. He has not checked the clock. Four o'clock is his usual feeding time. But yes. <laughs> One moment, dear cat. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, while she's doing that, that we want to go to the first point and talk about that. Sure. Um, further to your point, Catherine, there, um, yeah, there's a lot of things societally and culturally that, like, if we talk just uh, the the way we're told that things have to be a certain way, um, it's there's there's a much deeper thing there, like. If you take like the eight hour workday, everyone says we have to work nine to five and have weekends off. And if you don't, if you just take that for what it is, then fine. But if you look deeper, it's because they want everyone to fit into a certain box mm -hmm. that if everyone fits into that box, then the whole system works, right? a certain way it's designed to work a certain way it's layers of this layers of programming built on top of each other mm -hmm. and um but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what we're supposed to do that's just it's there to keep everyone in line and keep everything going and keep the money flowing to the top you know all that stuff but we buy into that, you know, yeah. we, we follow along with all that. We support all those, you know, people and systems. And even though, you know, especially, you know, in the disability system, they weren't built for, you know, the system wasn't built for us. It wasn't designed, you know, to really, um, address our needs and our, um, you know, ability to live outside of different disability silos. But I think that's kind of also, Mark, like a good image as far as, you know, we're always kind of trying to fit into a certain spot so people can categorize us and define us. And that authenticity sometimes is just even questioning or, you know, saying, look, you know, this is this is this is who I am. And that's a journey that everyone needs to go on. But I think that's something that we as a disability community don't do a really good job at focusing on our own internal bias against disability, you know, our own, you know, internal, you know, idea of what it looks like to be part of society and all of those things. And, you know, as long as we keep on buying into it, there's really no reason for anybody to have to make any changes because, you know, we're, we're essentially part of the problem. <laughs> When you're it's part like, of, sorry, go ahead. It's like that old analogy about rocking the boat. Nobody, as long as you don't rock the boat, nobody really cares. Yeah. cares. Well, and I had I had a really interesting discussion once with uh, Temple Grandin, and you know, it was right when I was first starting with my organization and I was just kind of asking her essentially for advice, taking as many, you know, thoughts that she may have that could possibly help me at some point. And she made a really good point. She's like, stop waiting 
for someone to make you an expert or to someone for someone giving you an authority on a topic. She's like, that's not something someone gives you. That's something you have to take. She's like, no one ever gave me, you know, the ability to, you know, be an advocate for autism or an advocate within the social sciences or all the work that she does for University of Colorado. She's like, these are things she's like that, you know, we within the disability community are not good at claiming what is ours and knowing our own worth and fighting for that. Mm -hmm. We are usually very, very happy at taking whatever people give to us. And the fact is, is that we don't have to wait for people to give anything to us. We have rightful places in a lot of this work. It's just, you know, we've never really imagined ourselves in those Mm -hmm. type of roles. And so some of it, you know, the limitations really a lot of times come from, from ourselves and our own feelings Mm -hmm. of self self-worth and self-esteem and what we're, you know, potentially capable. Um, And that comes down to, you know, feelings of being authentic. And especially with all the technology and everything, it is so hard to be authentic um, because you're literally being judged and criticized at every single aspect of your life. I was looking at my daughter's social media and that's literally all everyone does is just literally talk about people, judge them. It's not necessarily, you know, negative or bullying, but it's like you're constantly performing. People aren't allowed to make mistakes and that's not real, you know? And so I think that also comes into kind of a crisis of authenticity because people are afraid if they're themselves, they're not going to be perfect. And then they, you know, it could be all of a sudden, you know, videotaped for everyone to see. And people are afraid of, you know, being teased or being ridiculed or being ostracized. And we see that happen to people um, sometimes when they speak up for what they believe in. And, and social media can really be something that can be a powerful tool. Um, but it's also a powerful tool for both good and bad. So, you know, some of those things as far as being authentic and and really being able to showcase that, it's not always a safe environment to do it. That's true. I have several friends who who have disabilities. Um, I have Parkinson's disease, but until I was 60, I basically didn't have anything that I was having to cope with. But these are people who... Um, who were born with certain conditions. And one of the things that I've gotten from several of them is that they are not only um, expected to settle for whatever people send in their direction, but then they're supposed to be incredibly um, grateful for what they've been given, even if it's not a fit, even if it's not... um, even if it shows an incredible lack of understanding of them and who they really are and all that. And so doing what some of us would do, like say, oh, well, that's very kind of you to give me that dress, but but it, it is not in my size. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to just be abjectly grateful for anything as if you only deserve that least um, I guess, indicator of awareness or knowledge of who you really are. And having to play act at gratitude all the time 
and gratitude for something that um, neurotypical people would not put up with is very aggravating and demeaning for them. And I can definitely understand why. Yeah, and, and that's an excellent point because I see that highlighted a lot in like facilities, especially right. if somebody, you know, let's say somebody suffers, you know, an assault or something like that. Right. The expectation is whatever feelings, you know, emotions, anything surrounding that event, you know, you need to have dealt with it by the time that shifts over because the yeah. next, next shift doesn't want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. um, and there aren't necessarily safe spaces and, and trauma right. responsive, um, you know, actions. Um, but I think, I think what you, what you just said really goes back to the whole feelings of, you know, what are we worth? As soon as you're labeled right. as having a disability, a lot of times mm -hmm. people internally and outwardly, your value of life goes down. Mm -hmm. Um, and it shouldn't, I mean, that shouldn't have any bearing at all on it, but we saw that even within COVID, you know, as far mm -hmm. as when, you know, people were being hospitalized and there was a need for ventilators, there was a discussion around, you know, who, how would we make those determinations? Um, and I think, you know, that, that really illustrates a wonderful point where we aren't really trained to ask for the best, mm -hmm. um, or to really have, I high expectations we really wow. are literally trained that anything that's done for us or any kind of re support that we see we need to be like overly grateful wow. um, and nobody else has that same expectation but again yes. you know it's something we buy into and we keep mm -hmm. on perpetuating ourselves but it really comes back again to those feelings of worth to those feelings of yeah. you know self-esteem and to really know mm -hmm. look it doesn't matter, you know, what somebody may feel like I'm worth. I know what I'm worth and right. I can, you know, go beyond this person. But a lot of times, you know, and, and the other piece that we aren't talking about is a lot of people have obstacles with, mm -hmm. you know, going beyond that one person telling them, no, if you have, you know, a, a disability mm -hmm. where you have mobility impairments and you're not mm -hmm. able to utilize like a computer or a phone without the use of a staff person. Right. You know, and that person decides not to let you utilize that. I mean, that that aspect of power and control that affects things yes. like confidence and, and worth and those kind of things. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it, it really comes down to, you know, that authenticity really has to start at that foundational level. Um, mm -hmm. And those are again, it's not something that someone finds out for you. It's something you have to really spend your time and, and see, you know, who am I? You know, who am I at the very, very core? And then be proud of that person. I mean, there is no perfect. I think I, I talked once to Mark. I was, you know, I have asked in like conferences, uh, you know, can someone please tell me who this perfect person is? So at least I know what we judge. And they don't exist. That's what's crazy. There isn't perfection. The normal person isn't real. Nobody can come up with a name, but we buy into all of this um, right. because it's just another way for us to kind of judge ourselves and be deemed as less than uh, when in fact, you know, it, it's one of those things where you know, a lot of times you'll hear people with disabilities being referred to as like vulnerable and those kind of things. And, mm -hmm. and the, you know, and those words affect 
the ability to be authentic and, you know, confidence and those kind of things. When in fact, you know, and I know I've talked to you about this before, Crystal, the vulnerability within the disability community isn't because of the disability, it's because of the systems that, you know, are not set up to protect us, to support us and to empower us. Um, so a lot of these things that people see as obstacles you know, within the disability community. It's not the disability community. These are just obstacles that have been put out there because a lot of the stuff was created when people with disabilities were put away in the institutions. And so you didn't really have to worry about them. And then all of a sudden, Lois Curtis decided to bust everything open with Olmstead and we all come out and now Hi. it's like, hey, you guys have to fit into these systems that were never designed for you, that aren't gonna work for you. Um, and that don't really seem to be solution focused. And so we're dealing with all of this outside, all of this external stuff that we're constantly fighting against. We're tired because, you know, it, it never stops. And then we also have to like also work on who we are internally and finding out how we're authentic because we've spent our entire lives moving away from that. And it's just it can be a very, very exhausting struggle, but I know at least with my yes. own personal journey, with kind of looking at all the ways that I have changed in order to fit some sort of idea of who I'm supposed to be. It's been a very enlightening journey as far as really getting to the core of that authenticity, because it's really something you have to do on your own and you have to kind of be prepared, you know, because there's good parts of you and there's bad parts of you for everybody. Um, but really, you know, being accountable to yourself. The one thing I say to people is um, I make a lot of my decisions based upon whether or not I can look at myself in the mirror afterwards, uh, you know, and that, you know, has served me very, very well. And so, you know, I think it even comes down to who are you accountable to? And that authenticity piece, the first person you're accountable to is yourself. Right. I think it's so important for, uh, yeah, the disability community, but any marginalized community, because of all the things that we've been told or lied to about who we are and things like that and our worth and stuff like that. That takes us learning how to trust ourselves and internally take that to face value and not take in what other people try to tell you or, or tell you you're worth this because that is so damaging. And when you get to the point to where you can authentically know who you are and what your internal self is, whether it be faith or whatever you believe in, you know, um, once you can do that, that does a lot. I mean, and, and I think that, go ahead, Sorry. Mark. I was just going to add, it's a difficult thing to unpack sometimes. There, mm -hmm. there are a lot of, lot of layers uh, to the onion that you have For to sure. peel away. For sure. Are you ready for the next one? Sure. You want to read it? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll read it. Un, unbiased processing, clarity in, in evaluating your strengths and weaknesses without denial or blame. It also means giving the people agency to claim strengths and weaknesses without ableist intent. So, uh, Mark and I were talking about this, you know, one of the big topics right now is workplaces. Being upset that we're not being authentic and talking about our, and being honest about our abilities, but they're not giving us the autonomy to do those things. They're saying, if you can't do this, that we don't have to put this stuff in place and we can do, just work on tokenism. So common sense says that you're gonna hide or mask those things so that you have the same opportunities and are paid the same, you know, in a workplace and not othered, you know what I mean? So, I mean, it has to work both ways. Sure, we'll be authentic, but we also need a space where we can have authenticity. So, you know, what do you yeah, think about space, that? Space also includes um, the understanding that if I'm authentic, I'm not going to be punished for... Right for being open and honest and forthright. And anything? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, I think that's one thing. The weakness uh, element is something no one really likes to look at um, within themselves for obvious reasons, um, because weakness is a lot of times um, kind of connected to, you know, victim and and you know a lot of words within the weakness uh you know term can really make people feel very very negative but sometimes those weaknesses can actually be a strength like for example um the type of work that we do um people who have been in the space have you know had little pockets of success here and there but one of the things that we do with our work, because a lot of the stuff we do has never been done before, we have to trial it. And so what I say to my team and people I work with, I want us to fail in certain regards because then we know those things don't work. Um, and that's where a lot of things have come into play. We're so afraid anymore to take a chance. We're so afraid you know, of not succeeding that we don't even try. And that's really, really evident in, in our lack of innovation around certain areas within the disability community. Um, and, and we really are not given the agency to really be innovative, to create, which is too bad because that's really kind of inherent for our community. Um, we constantly have to create and adapt to live in this world. Um, we're constantly literally providing accommodations so that we can exist here um, because the world is not necessarily set up for us. So I think a lot of times when we think about things that are strengths and weaknesses, we really need to get away from terminology like good and bad 
um, because mm -hmm. all of those things work together. They're all interconnected. Um, mm -hmm. That really kind of, you know, help us become the person uh, that we mm -hmm. are. But I do agree, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of that also depends on our leaders and our representation. And, you know, the, the issue is, is that, you know, people are put in leadership positions and we keep them there. And if they shouldn't be there anymore, then we should be putting new people in. Um, and we don't really do that so much with the disability community. It's kind of like once you're a leader, you kind of stick there. And we don't really do the best job of lifting people up. Um, and we're very, very good a lot of times about pointing out our differences with each other, but we don't do a very good job of lifting each other up. And historically, with any community, with any culture, um, you really have to get to the point where if you're going to represent an entire community, if we're going to be part of this disability community, we're going to have to learn how to talk to each other. So the, the fact of the matter is we all are never going to agree on everything. We're just not because we're all different people. But there are basic things that we should be able to start coming together on and talking about. And those have historically within the disability community been like transportation, education, employment, community integration. Um, I want, you know, victimization to be there because of the high rate of victimization with in the disability community. But, you know, that that's another element of this as well is is what is our role in this? What is our role in changing these systems and, and to provide a space where you can be authentic? But some of that means we need to look within ourselves um, and within our own community and our culture. And if we say we represent a community, then we can't just pick, you know, a certain segment, whether it represents certain mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. political views or certain right. you know, cultural mm -hmm. elements. It's kind of like, okay, if we're going to represent everyone, then that means that I'm going to have to represent some people I don't like um, right. and some people that I don't necessarily agree with. But And those like, people might not like you. Yeah, but they, but they have <laughs> but. a place. Their voices <laughs> deserve to be heard too. And it's one mm -hmm. of those um, I think there's a quote by Toni Morrison where if the only way that you can stand tall is if you're standing on somebody's shoulders or something mm -hmm. like that, you know, that's mm -hmm. one of those things. Are people who are in the disability leadership positions, are they lifting up others? You know, are they speaking out against ableism and tokenism? Mm -hmm. Are they even like helping people understand what qualifies as a disability? Because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that that you know, you made a really good point as far as, you know, there are elements of disability that, you know, it's not like you're born with a disability and that's the only way that you become part of the community. The disability community is equal opportunity. Everybody has the chance to become part of us at some point in their life. And we don't always do a good job of accepting people into the community at different stages of their lives. I mean, the amount of conversations I have to have within the disability community to convince people that older adults are part of our community <laughs> is ridiculous. I mean, outside of the fact people with disabilities age, you also can acquire age-related disabilities when you age, you know, like loss of mobility, um, vision, hearing, all of those things. So I think also part of this being authentic is learning to just get back to the basics and learning to see ourselves in each other because you know we all have a story we all have a different path that got us here and yes we might not have to agree with somebody 
But we also have to respect the fact that, you know, they have their own story and we may not know that, but there's a reason why people respond to things the way that they do. That's a good point. We, we do tend to silo ourselves in our own uh, communities yeah. and uh, sort of, it's hard for, sometimes it's hard for um, our message to get across because nobody knows what message, what the message is because there's so many different disability groups and they're all fighting for different things and uh, sometimes fighting each other and uh, <laughs> we're, we're not going to get anywhere like that. Mm. No, and, and you know, I, I think, you know, the, the other piece about it is that if we really were able as a community to embrace ourselves, you know, on certain issues, we would be so powerful. And it actually really, you know, benefits a lot of people for us to remain fragmented, for us to have right. those internal yeah, certainly. struggles yeah, and certainly does. fights. I mean, we're, we're literally playing the role that we're supposed to perfectly. Um, but I think, you know, like I said, if there are, and, and this isn't just the disability community, it's any mm -hmm. community, but, you know, mm -hmm. if we can find, we just have to get back to finding things that we do have in common and starting, starting to make steps. We don't have to solve all the problems, but we do have to start recognizing that we're all in this together. So like if they decide to send everybody back to the institutions one day, <laughs> we're all gonna be in that like car together. So it's not like <laughs> someone's gonna have like the special seat and someone's gonna have like the trunk. They're just gonna throw us all in there together. So like whatever little hierarchy or things that we do within the disability community is very silly because the rest of society looks at us as a group. And so if that's how they look at us, then I think that's really a great way for us to kind of envision our role. We can work together as a community. If they want to see us as a community, then let's be a community. Um, and let's start advocating as one um, and people are going to have their own interests and their, you know, because of all the intersectionalities and that's fine. But there are certain things that like as a community, it's like, why are we not speaking out? Where is our voice? Because I don't see myself being represented, um, you know, very well in, in a lot of these discussions that are going on. And the fact that, you know, that this is how you know when you've gotten older, the fact that I'm advocating uh, to make sure everyone's point of view is at the table. Yeah. That comes from experience. Like that is the difference. A lot of people are like, oh, it's the young people that, you know, are, are the ones that are going to, you know, push more for, for change and, and, you know, who are going to be more sure of who they are. I kind of think it's going to be the older folks that are going to take a little bit more of the lead in this because mm -hmm. it's kind of like, look, we know how this all is if we don't find a way to come together. Um, and so it's one of those things where, you know, you have to have some skin in the game. Everybody has to understand how this directly affects yeah. them. Um, yeah. But I think, I think the unbiased processing and the clarity, I think the other piece that comes to this point, Mark, is also there's a great quote by Jane Goodall where her greatest fear is apathy. Mm -hmm. 
and we're dealing with an epidemic of apathy right now and so Mm -hmm. it's really hard sometimes to do that individual work when it kind of feels like everything else around you is falling down but that's a lot of times the best time to start that work a lot of times the only thing that you can really control is what's going on with you um and at least my own personal example is sometimes you can't even do that very well but that's the one you have the best chance at least of making some sort of difference with right and if we're talking about authenticity you know uh the powers that be in the system that we have in place are are hoping that we can divide ourselves whether it's disabled, non-disabled, or um, Republican, Democrat, or this religion, that religion, we get less done that way. And Mm -hmm. it's less likely we're going to upset their apple carts, right? But the people like Judy Human and her uh, colleagues who actually got the ADA passed, they welcomed everyone. The Black Panthers, veterans, whoever. If you were someone that was oppressed by this unfair system that they had at the time, and we still have it in a lot of ways, then let's all get together because you know why? Simply for the fact that they don't want us together. And the deeper reason is because it it suits their narrative or their motives to keep mm-hmm. us isolated, keep us separate. And it's sad when people have already bought into that and that's who they are going forward. And they have no intention of trying to change and be authentic and reach deep within and find out who they really are. Um, we actually put out an episode this yesterday on how the, what was it? The, oh, the um, actually autistic and how that kind of othered the community within the community. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know, when you're, when your main motive uh, is dividing things and dividing communities and uh, other minorities as well, then that's where the problem is because you've taken what you learned about dividing everything and you're doing this very same thing. But it, we also have some responsibility if historically this has mm-hmm. always gone on and we just, mm-hmm. I mean, this isn't something new. And the issue mm-hmm. is when do we as a community break that cycle? Um, right. Because if we recognize it's wrong, we shouldn't be mm-hmm. waiting for someone else to break it. We need to break that mm-hmm. cycle ourselves. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of this goes back to just foundational stuff. A lot of mm-hmm. people within the disability community don't even know about disability history. They don't know, you know, about, you know, the history with the Black Panthers and indigenous rights. They don't 
know about, you know, the first federal psychiatric hospital for American Indians was in Hiawatha, and now it's part of a golf course where the cemetery is. I mean, people don't know this stuff. And that, I think, is part of the bigger problem as far as erasing disability history and not having the disability community pretty much demanding that we are included in that space. Um, but, you know, all of the discussion, usually when we talk about disability is ableist and tokenism and, you know, essentially not having our seat at the table. But when you go back in disability history, at least in North America, when it existed with Native Americans, they didn't even have a name for disability because it wasn't other. It was something where you were just who you were and whatever, you know, personality or things that were a part of you, that's just what that's who you were. You could still find something to do. You'd still have a job, you know, so you didn't get other. Um, and so I think, you know, the other thing we don't really talk a ton about is, you know, the whole concept of, you know, even that mentality of colonialism kind of coming in and kind of controlling a population. And if you look at that, there's a lot of parallels to the disability community. So there's really been this kind of structured oppression that has gone on within the disability community. And even talking about things like authenticity is kind of like revolutionary because that's not something that you really hear people with disabilities talk about because no one really sometimes even gives us permission to be like, figure out who you are outside of who everyone wants you to be or outside of all the things that you've learned. Who are you? And then look at that person in the mirror and realize that person is completely fine the way that they are completely fine the way that they are. Um, and, and that's where we need to, as disability community, start, you know, encouraging people, start improving people's confidence and self-esteem, start telling people when they're doing a good job or that, you know, a lot of this is, is really, you know, empowerment that needs to come from within the community because we don't do that. We don't do that. I have a friend who was hired um, by a, a small community to be the accessibility director and she was put in a house with six steps and um she is in tremendous pain going up and down those steps and has taken some falls at the bottom of the steps are some flagstones nothing fills in the spaces between the flagstones so those are are an accident waiting to happen <laughs> yeah. um and there are thresholds in the house that are easy to trip over. And she has lived there for several years. And, and um, you know, a community meetings has talked about the things that need addressing. And even though they hired her knowing her situation and on one level asking for her to address on behalf of others, you know, the what needed to be addressed. When she brings up the things that need addressing, she's treated like a whiner yeah. and basically yeah. dismissed. And, and it, it's only individuals who help her, yeah. not the organization. Right. Um, another thing that has been haunting my heart, um, I have a friend who is 96 and has low vision 
and she is now um, getting in home care. And she has a man about my age who she got to know through her old church and she has me and we advocate for her. And she has the most wonderful care people you can possibly imagine. They are glorious. I want them to adopt me. I want to grow up and be those people. They are that wonderful. On the other hand, I have a friend who spends her life in a wheelchair and her caregivers have been horrific absolutely horrific they have said things done things failed to say or do things um that in in the um non-disability community would have caused them to be fired and yet they continue on because the attitude tends to be count your blessings. You've got someone to help you. Don't ask for anything more than that. That's too much. And it breaks my heart and it makes me furious. It really does. Um, You know, these are from two different agencies, but the fact that the people at the wheelchair person's, um, facility are permitted to take care of people who are struggling against so much and to do it if they feel like doing it and however they feel like doing it. I mean, she was abandoned by her caregiver in the middle of a fire drill. And nobody knew whether it was for real or not. So basically it was like, good luck, honey. Yeah. You know, I mean, but what does it say about our society that exactly. the best we can do in terms of caregivers is, you know. It is not to even think about the humanity yes. that it brings. And that goes back to authenticity. You know, being able to acknowledge where you, what you've done or what kind of experience or how you've harmed others or the the privileges that you've ensued, that you ensue to pass, you know, to make others feel like less than, you know. Crystal, I think you bring up a great point. There is a privilege involved in being able to be authentic. Um, Mm -hmm. It is a privilege. Not everyone is able to be authentic. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think what what is just brought up is, of course, within the disability community, we're we're suffering from extreme staff shortages, um, Mm -hmm. which is causing huge problems across the board, you know, Mm -hmm. in so many areas, but also in uh, victimizations and allegations of abuse and neglect. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, what what actually is, is that's a perfect thing to bring up because if we don't address the foundational things within our community, mm-hmm. safety, um, housing and food, 
food stability. Mm -hmm. Those three things, if those three things are not addressed and they're not right. stable, it's really hard right. to build upon that and to get people to be able to work on other aspects of themselves. Right, because that's such an intersectionality yes. of, yeah. you know. And you're, Christ, you're always in a crisis mode. So if you're also being victimized, you never come out of that crisis mode if you're right. in a facility because you're constantly in that environment. Um, so those are things to kind of think about even when we're talking about topics of authenticity. It's a privilege. Those are things that the four of us on this on this you know meeting can discuss and talk about. But for a lot of people, they can't even get there because they're really their basic needs are not being met. And right. we really need to look at safety as being one of those basic needs, because if you don't feel safe, how can you really focus on anything else? Because you're constantly in that hypervigilant state. Um, and unfortunately, mm -hmm. that is an ongoing issue with our community that really doesn't seem like there's anything being addressed to tackle that um, right. on any real systemic level. And on top of, of what you're saying, I find myself wondering what it does to both physical health and mental health to be in that state of hypervigilance, you know, just for your entire life. Yep. And we know, we know as a result of that, you know, that can lead to, you know, additional diagnosis, additional medication, but when it comes down to it, it comes down to untreated trauma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, essentially the fact that there these abusive types of environments have existed forever, um, they are not being improved upon, you know, in a way that's really systemic. And it's kind of like, okay, are we just going to continue to just, you know, allow things to be as they've always been? And we can talk about how, you know, bad it is, but, you know, you have to get to the point where you're actually doing something. We can only have so many so many me meetings and talk about this stuff so much. And at mm -hmm. some point it's kind of like, look, there's so many disability advocacy groups. Why are they not, you know, some of them are, but like, why are they not going to facilities and, and meeting with and developing relationships and connections? The more people who have interactions with other people, the it raises that safety level because that's another person who potentially may be able to help or may be able to, you know, tell someone but that authenticity is kind of a goal i think that we're all getting to but i think it really exposes some huge gaps for a lot of our population that right. really erased out of these conversations and that's why this platform exists because we want to discuss the issues and have people recognize them and use their expertise to say, hey, I have the resources mm -hmm. to maybe solve one of those issues and never everybody works together. Or just right. even if you see somebody and you open the door or you say hi mm -hmm. or you spend a little bit of time talking to someone, you may be that mm -hmm. only person that that person interacts yeah. with that is nice mm -hmm. to them that day. So it doesn't have to be some sort of grand, no, you know, gesture. No. You don't have to have a ton of money. You don't have to even have transportation. It's that when you're just interacting with people, be kind because you don't know what they're going through. Um, and and everybody, I feel confident at this stage is is probably going through something. The way that you know society yeah. is, and with all of the health needs and and all of that, people really. 
I read an article, isolation and loneliness is one of the biggest issues right now here in America. Um, and so it can really just be, just speak to someone, be kind. Um, because again, you don't know what they're going through. And it generates a kind of positive energy when you do that. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about the apathy thing that we were mentioning earlier. And um, apathy is one of the symptoms of people with Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. And since COVID happened, there's been a huge um, increase in the number of people who have been um, diagnosed with Parkinson's. So we may have both an emotionally based apathy and a physically ba based apathy going on simultaneously in our country. That's a, that's a whole lot of apathy. That's a great point. I, I think that's another topic that I feel like maybe <laughs> yeah. under the surface, sure. maybe apathy. And I have a feeling we'll both be back on here. Yeah. <laughs> it's a simple sure. thing yeah. um, for me to find things to love and admire in other people. That That happens to be one thing that comes easily to me. And one of my favorite things to do is to actually look at people who are in wheelchairs and make eye contact, um, find an opportunity to say hi. And more times than you would believe, the person in that wheelchair has gorgeous hair or has beautiful earrings or is wearing a color that's very flattering and for me, it is such a joy to say that color looks fabulous on you <laughs> because it's true. It's just for some reason, it seems like, you know, if you're in a wheelchair, you're rendered invisible or people just don't think to say what they might say if you were, you know, more vertical. And I think and that. I think that goes into the authenticity piece too, where, you know, I know that there's a lot of talk around language and around correct terminology and, and people get really, really bent out of shape about it. And they have good reasons. I mean, there's historical mm -hmm. context for it. There's mm -hmm. cultural context for it. It's valid. But I think, you know, we also have to get to a point where we have some grace for people. And it's also recognizing not everyone has the same backgrounds, not everyone has the same education in this field. And if somebody's making an effort, let's meet them halfway. You know, let's not just sit there and wait for them to trip up. If, if you know, you can tell early on if somebody's struggling to find the right words and those kind of things, don't let them, you know, kind of walk themselves up to you know, the firing squad, go ahead and help, you know, because the issue is, is, you know, back in the day, we were fighting against people using the term um, MR and, and what that stands for. And, you know, and now it's kind of like, there's so much terminology out there. No one can keep track of all of it. You know, I think within a community, we have to start also giving some grace to intention and recognizing that nobody is going to have all the right terminology or anything but if they're coming from a place of good intention and they really want to learn more and they're an ally or they're part of the disability community that's another thing we never think about just because you're part of a community doesn't mean that you are knowledgeable about the community 
we don't do a lot of trainings and educations around disability history, around disability bias, around all these different intersections. And I think a lot of people would want that knowledge, but it's not out there. I mean, we do trainings, most of our trainings are free, but outside of us, um, I don't know a lot of people that focus on that disability history aspect, but I think this is another element for advocacy groups when you're talking about authenticity is that a lot of people want more information. They wanna be proud of the culture that they come from. They wanna be more active or more knowledgeable. And we as a community don't always do a great job of putting those supports in place to get that information and that knowledge out to our own, to our own people. I think what you said about the language surrounding disability and the different tropes within that, um, is, you know, we're asking way too much. We, we, we need to focus on the getting the world to be accessible and understanding the issues and the infrastructure <laughs> and all that. And don't focus so much on judging people for the way they say something or, you know, Oh, just, yeah, the, the psychology behind all that, oh, it, it's it kind, of, it kind of also intersects, Crystal, with mm -hmm. that whole transformational justice right. concept yeah. as far mm -hmm. as, you know, we have to get past the point where our response is just cancel culture or, or punitive. It's one mm -hmm. of those things where you know, things are not going to change or make any real difference until we start working with people and kind of, you know, look, this is why you don't say this. This is why you don't do this. And there are some people that are doing it to be mean and hurtful, but the vast majority of people just don't know. And so working with them and kind of meeting them um, where they're at, because I think that's another thing. I think maybe Mark alluded to that at the beginning about authenticity is that People are afraid sometimes to be themselves because they don't want to be misinterpreted. Um, you know, I know with autism, you know, I spend a very large percentage of my life trying to explain to people how I got from A to B um, because I process things differently. And it makes sense how I got from A to B, but, but the way I get there is totally different from anybody else. Um, and so it takes a long time for people to kind of understand how I'm how I'm moving in, in that regard. But, you know, I think that's an issue is that we all have been in places where or been in situations where someone has shown us grace, where, you know, we've put our foot in the mouth or it wasn't something we knew a lot about, but we kept on talking and we should have, you know, essentially shut up. And somebody showed us some grace. And so I'm just saying as a community, as a culture, especially um, for the folks that are, you know, my age and have spent a long time in their careers or older, you know, showing some some grace and, and kind of using that to mentor uh, the younger generation, I think is good because I think, you know, people want to want, if people want to be called whatever they want to be called, cool. We can all do that. The issue is, is that like, if, if some people want to be known as like autistic, some people want to be known with Asperger's, fine but I can't just meet you and know that. So it really comes down again to connection. Instead of figuring out what to call people, let's actually meet them and get to know them 
And then you don't really care what you have to call them anymore because you have that connection you already know. And so it's really what we're doing is kind of missing out on that human interaction piece. We're just taking information, we're making judgments, and then we're kind of vomiting out our response. We just don't have to to interact with people. And that Mm -hmm. is something that I think we're really going to regret as time goes on because there's a lot of people who could be our allies if we just spent the time, you know, getting to know them. For sure. And a lot of some of the problems that we have could be solved by actively building those connections and making some forward progress instead of infighting in all the Facebook groups or on all social media and squabbling about petty things that don't really matter all that much. Good point. I remember my mother... Um, who was very shy and who um, moved around a lot as a child, developed as her way of staying safe, letting nobody know anything about her. Um, She never exposed her belly, so to speak, you know. Um, So she didn't let people know she was shy. She didn't let people know um, that she was very sensitive and all of that. And as far as she was concerned, keeping people at arm's length was what kept her safe. And she tried to teach me to do that. And I'm built the opposite way. You know, (laughs) Um, I want to lead with my weakness. And because I, I feel like it is, um, it, it lets people know that they're safe with me because I am, I am showing them where they could attack me if they wanted to. Um, my father was a businessman and he tried to teach me to never show any weakness because in his community, if you showed weakness or vulnerability, you were dismissed and not taken seriously. And I could never do that either. So here I am 66 years old non-athletic and teaching people how to punch things, um, you know, to help them with their, their um, Parkinson's disease, sharing my lack of athleticism freely so that people who come into the class cannot possibly feel like I can't do that. I'm not athletic. Well, I always say to them, okay, but did you ever get a zero out of 25 on a, on a field hockey skill test? Because I did. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I'm learning that there is freedom in being who I really am, mm-hmm. a non-athlete who really doesn't love core exercises, but right. who finds that they make her more stable. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, exactly. you know, I I just got off of a month of um, oh. doing all the rock steady boxing classes that, um, that my... Um, um, head coach normally does because she was away and I thought I can't do this I'm not a good enough teacher and then I thought okay so I need to own that so I said to my class I am not the best boxing teacher around here you know who is but for a month I'm going to be teaching boxing my personal goal is to come out of this being a better boxing teacher and I need your help doing it. 
So I need for you to give me honest feedback about what I'm doing that helps and what I'm doing that makes things harder. And right. we're going to get a better boxing teacher out of this month. Right. And by golly, we did. And mm -hmm. strangely enough, I found that, you know, laying it all right in front of them and being honest and open enlisted their best efforts to, you know, help me learn what I needed to learn. You know, mm -hmm. um, I'm not that great at reading a room. So, you know, if everybody's getting so desiccated that they're turning into jerky, you know, I may or may not realize it, but yeah. now they know that. And so they'll, they'll let me know when that's happening mm -hmm. and I will thank them mm -hmm. um, with great energy because they know I love them and I want to do the best I can by them. And I can't mm -hmm. do it without their help. Right. And the, that, the, cool, the cool thing is I bet the people in your class don't see what you see as a weakness. They see it as a strength. Right. Could be. And when they're able to give you grace and help you find that's being authentic and helping on your journey of that. So, yeah. and also I want to go back to when you were talking about your dad, um, you know, the people using justification to talk to you in a certain way that I had this going on when I was growing up and these kind of bad things happen. So I'm going to impose that on you <laughs> or, or, you know, the same kind of thing I had to go through. So you do too. I'm the opposite of that. <laughs> so mm -hmm. so uh, that also lets you know straight away when someone is their they, they their idea to go forward in the world is to be authentic and try to help people understand and instead of trying to justify their negativity and their desire to want to out you or you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. And I'm finding that the more open I am about who I am, um, you know, warts and all, so to speak, um, the less energy I am draining in unnecessary and impossible um, attempts to retain dignity or the illusion of competence or whatever it is I'm, I'm anxious about, right. um, or the lack of anxiety. I, <laughs> I have anxiety. And, mm -hmm. um, and one breakthrough moment I had with my class was when I had an anxiety attack while teaching. This was several years ago. And I mm -hmm. could not even think of the words hook, <laughs> you know, left hook, right hook. Mm -hmm. And that's so basic to boxing. And, you would think that I had just sort of wandered into the room for the first time, you know, and I'd been doing it for several years. So I, um, I went home that night, fell to pieces, said to my husband, they deserve better than this. Got over myself, thought I had an anxiety attack. That is a Parkinson's special. So I went in the next um, Monday and I said, you may not have noticed, but I had a bit of an anxiety attack. Right. <laughs> Let's talk about anxiety and and mm -hmm. use the opportunity 
to invite everyone to weigh in on their experiences with anxiety. And, you know, I think I mentioned this in, in an earlier um, discussion with this group. Um, I found out some things about my students that, that humbled me. I mean, these students are incredibly capable people who have done truly impressive things in the world. And some of them did that, those things right in the midst of coping with their own anxiety issues. And this is you know, before they were ever diagnosed, but they were brave enough to share with the class what they'd been through and what they'd learned from it. And we all walked out of there a little bit freer and a little bit genuinely stronger, you know, not better at covering up who we are or what we're going through, but better at processing it. Right. And there is joy in that and strength and peace and honesty. And knowing that you're not alone. I think oh, that's huge. A lot of times, especially with like panic attacks and anxiety attacks. I mean, people right. would be shocked at how often that's happening. Absolutely. But it feels so isolating. And you don't have a lot of people who are really, it's not even about being authentic, but it's about exposing themselves right. to really talk about that or to indicate right. when that's happening and really kind of make it more normal because it is actually kind of a normal event. I mean, people mm -hmm. have these attacks all the time. And instead mm -hmm. of making it seem like it's really, really rare and there's something wrong with you, if it was more normalized, I think it would be a lot easier um, or just shrug it off. Yeah. But I think I think that's another aspect is that we have to have more people who are going through these things themselves, who are going to be willing mm -hmm. to, for lack of a better word, essentially exploit yourself, put yourself out there, yeah. show your show your story, you know, have everything kind of come back to you because mm -hmm. you are going to sometimes be that vessel that is going to allow somebody else to be able to deal with something or to be able to identify something. Um, and so a lot of times, unfortunately, when you're in positions of leadership within the disability community, that becomes a de facto role where, you know, you kind of have to, or, or you don't. So you have two big groups of people that act like, you know, they got everything together all the time. And then you have the other group of people like me, that's like, look, I don't even know what together looks like, but you know, this is this is the best that we can do, and this is what we're doing. And mm -hmm. I think having more people being honest, and again, that's perpetuated by our social media. I mean, everything, you know, constant pictures and images of everything being perfect and everybody together. I, I said to a friend one time, I said, you know, luckily a lot of my Facebook friends I know outside of Facebook. Because mm -hmm. if I didn't, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, like, <laughs> what are these people? Because they sound perfect. You know, it sounds like right. no one has any problems, no relationship issues, no kid problems. All children <laughs> behave perfectly. It's like very unrealistic. And people are lying all the time on their oh, social media. And it's kind of like to have that vulnerability. And, and it does create a safe place for people to kind of talk about that. And, and a lot of times those attacks are what inhibit people from participating in programs like yours. So I think like, you know, that takes that takes a lot of courage. And there is a lot of courage found in being authentic, because you're putting yourself out there and there's no one there to protect you. 
Um, and either people are going to respond well, like is what happened in your class, or, you know, you also run the risk of all of them saying, oh my gosh, you haven't had a panic attack. You can't teach me and walking out. Now, of course, you know, you don't expect that to happen, but it does sometimes, you know, and it's like, you know, you have to kind of balance what battles you want to fight and which ones you don't. But I think having the courage to be authentic, to, you know, tell stories that, again, you know, you're phrasing it like this was a weakness. This ended up really being a huge strength that connected your entire group together. Um, and so for us being able to talk about that, even just the discussion, it can change our own perspectives of events. Which is the, oh, I think the ultimate irony because we're, we're sitting afraid of being authentic because we're going to be vulnerable and unprotected. Yep. But when, when we're open and we are vulnerable people are going to step up because they know who we are and they know we need that extra help and they're going to feel connected mm -hmm. to us mm -hmm. they're going to naturally want to help whereas if we're all in our individual uh, doing our own individual things everyone fending for themselves then no one's going to have anyone's back that's true Catherine, I, I don't want to intimidate you with my perfection, but I recently had an experience in which all three of my toilets were clean at the same time and no one was coming Whoa. over. No one was coming over. We normally um, we normally get our act together if someone who doesn't love us is coming over, yep. like a plumber. Mm -hmm. And then we have amazing ability to clean bathrooms and and remember to make beds and things like that yep but recently <laughs> i don't know i was overtaken by a spirit of of cleanliness and all three at the same time i mean usually it's like one and then another it's the, and then it's the new you it's kind of showing like don't settle for one go for the gold <laughs> go for the gold yes thank you that's that's very inspirational but despite all of that, I am not perfect. No, no. And I think, like, who wants to hang out with someone who is? You know, I mean, right. this whole, there isn't, if, if you really think back of everyone who you interact with, you can't come up with a, everybody has something. I mean, and if you really start Seriously, thinking about the right. people in your life, you can probably diagnose them all with something. I feel like probably everybody has some element of a disability is usually what what my thing is and really you know it, it's one of those things where we talk about the disability community and the community that you know is outside of the disability community but it really can be one community because a lot of the things that we're talking about if you frame it in another kind of concept it's the same thing you know whether you have a disability or not you don't want to feel vulnerable you know, you don't want to, you know, like not be able to be heard or seen or believed. And so, I mean, there really are a lot of things that are shared. It's just the perspective ends up being different depending on, you know, what side you're on. Right. You know, when, when my child, uh, my older child was going into second grade, um, I was asked if I would take care of somebody else's child before and after school and the somebody else 
I had for some years been calling perfect so-and-so, right? Because she seemed perfect. I mean, she is one of those people who does hard things in a graceful and an effortless way. And she's always bubbly and sweet and, you know, all that, right? So that was the one thing that scared me about taking care of her child for a year. And during the course of the year, I mean, she, she has all three toilets clean all the time. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's not a once in a lifetime thing for her. And um, um, she roofed her own house, you know, one of, one of these people and absolutely gorgeous on top of it, effortlessly gorgeous. So I was all prepared to, um, to feel, you know, defensive and anxious around her. And she totally messed up my mind because she was utterly humble, <laughs> utterly kind, um, very insightful, very wise. And why? Because even though she seemed like she had everything going for her, she too had had a tough life. Everybody yep. has a tough life. She had had situations to deal with that I can't even begin to imagine finding the courage to deal with. Mm -hmm. And she had handled them beautifully. And by the end of the year, I'd grown to just love her like a sister. And I, I thought, God is in the process of perfecting her. No, nobody is perfect. But God is perfecting her through her sufferings, through her challenges in life. And that's really the source of her radiance. It's the yeah. fact that she has so much compassion and kindness of spirit and and graciousness yeah but that's also a good example where you know your first impression and interaction of her really would have discouraged you from really right. even creating any kind of connection and once right. you were actually able to meet her and got to know who she was you realize you know probably you guys have much more in common than you ever would have thought you would have um you know yeah. And so, I mean, I think, I think that really goes back to what we were saying around labels and all those other things is it can go on both sides. We can also be very, very critical and think that we know how someone's approaching mm -hmm. us and where they're coming from and mm -hmm. have our own biases towards that person and what mm -hmm. even biases about what they think they might think of me. And, you know, we mm -hmm. haven't even had a conversation and, right. you know, I mean, it, it can go both ways. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yep. But I find that the more I can let go of fear and defensiveness, the more I can truly behold and appreciate and rejoice in the beauty of others. Mm -hmm. And and it feels so far like it's basically all others. I mean, I really have not, I think I've only found one person in my life who I still have trouble appreciating and that's because that person was very cruel um, and felt no regret about it. But most of us are doing the best we can with what we've got and we're clumsy and we make atrocious mistakes and we desperately wish we could undo them and we can't, but we can repent, we can learn from them and we can accept grace as well as give it. And that's what I makes see. us human. Yeah. And, that's yeah, what, and that essentially them. is what makes us normal. <laughs> if right. we really want to be, you know, if you want to define normal, that's what normal is, is yes. broken and fragmented and putting it yes. all together. 
Yes. Yes. And we're just privileged if we are given eyes to see how beautiful that is. And if we have, you know, the ability to feel safe and to have food security and housing security and to be able to focus on these elements of our lives, Um, because, you know, that that is another piece where there's a lot of people who, you know, this is not an area of their lives where they're doing that internal searching, but it's because they can't. They're still in that crisis mode. Um, And, and, you know, I do think that that was a great point that, you know, there really is that privilege involved in being able to be introspective because, you know, not everyone is afforded that. I I think that's where a lot of the coming together can happen with things like food security. It's not just a disabled problem. It's not just a problem of some ethnic minority or if we all come together and realize we all have this shared problem, we can have a bigger voice and make a lot more impact. But Mark, what's also important is to really recognize whether or not people are actually looking for a solution. Um, You know, if they really are solution based, like for example, with the whole food insecurity and stuff, that's something that we could easily solve just even like if the trees we grew in cities produce fruit i mean you know or if garden beds had you know you know gardens in them and it was free for people to take i mean these are just very common sense practical ways you know even you know as far as you know people are like you know how do you deal with such huge problems, where do you start? Well, that's a good one for food insecurity. Another one when people are like, you know, well, there's a lot of discussion around law enforcement pulling people over. And, you know, if if that interaction ends up, you know, not being law abiding and the, the law enforcement officer oversteps their authority and engages in criminal activity, you know, what what do the rest of us who are not involved in that particular instance do? you know, to really have a systemic effect. Here's an idea. When it happens, everyone pull over and start videotaping. You have a whole bunch of white soccer moms on the side of the street videotaping. I'm sure you're gonna get a different response. But the issue is, is that do we really want practical common sense solutions that we can implement? Or do we just wanna keep talking about it? And what we do is we keep talking about it. And, you know, and some of that can go back to kind of what we were talking about, taking risks and being vulnerable and those kind of things. But some of it also is we have to look at these things and really see how hard is it to come up with a solution? Not hard. You know, does that mean that that solution is going to be perfect? No. But why are we even trying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's per- perfect. I think it's a perfect thing to mention that the last under the surface you were in was accountability mm-hmm. with us. And that was like six months ago, right? And so, you know, the, the idea of, you know, understanding the issues mm-hmm. and being accountable for those and then teaching yourself authenticity coming out of that. Now that's a huge step. And when people can recognize that and get to that point, and like I mentioned in the beginning of this, 
there's levels of authenticity. I mean, there's people who just know realizing, oh, oh, yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's people, you know, that are much more, uh, they're much more internally able to do those things and do the work needed to, to you know, fix that problem. You know? And like you said, you know, the best way to do it is we have the technology to be able to record that stuff. Mm -hmm. So perfect for, we think of sometimes, we think of technology as the devil, <laughs> But but it can also be something that really helps us. Well, and thanks to technology, it really has leveled the playing field for mm -hmm. a lot of, well, let me rephrase that. It has actually allowed some people to make it close mm -hmm. to a playing field uh, for people who have communication disabilities. Yeah. Because that, you know, when we're talking about accountability and authenticity, we also mm -hmm. have to bring up access and the mm -hmm. issue is, is that for many of us, we don't have a place at the table, um, right. not because the invite wasn't kind of like indirectly given, but because no one gave us a direction to the building. We can't mm -hmm. even get, you know, and then the building has stairs and there's no elevator. And if we're right. in a mobility devices, yeah. stuff, I mean, it's all kind of interconnected. But I do think, you know, bringing up these topics on your podcast is just so important because a lot mm -hmm. of the the discussion out there around disability issues don't doesn't really deal with a lot of internal growth um doesn't really deal with a lot of these type of topics and so i think this has an important place in our narrative and i think a lot yeah. of people really need to be discussing yeah. these things and what does authenticity mean to them and what does it look like um, because being authentic you know at my age um i'm 40 five and then i know going up you know at 66 our perspectives are going to be a little bit different sure. i'm hoping i'm going to be a tad bit more wiser at 66 i'm not betting on it but i'm hoping that that, <laughs> that could happen um, that's the other piece is that you know even if we have shared views on topics we don't have the same perspective because we come from different walks we have different experiences um, and so it's kind of like, even if someone looks like me and has the same disability and interacts the same way, like that doesn't mean that we can check off that person as far as being a representation of a disability right. community. It's right. literally every, if you're part of the disability community, you already have a seat at the table. You don't have to ask for it. You have one. It's pretty much you were born with it. And the issue is, is that we just have to spend our entire lives trying to get to the table. Um, and, you know, I, my joke has always been, you know, for people who uh, use mobility devices, they're better prepared than most because they constantly, Shirley Chisholm uh, once said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, you bring your own. So I feel like people in mobility devices are like really prepared because they're ready for, for a table regardless of where they are. They have their chairs ready for that seat. Um, and so I think that's the that's the other element of this too is really mm -hmm. understanding that you know part of authenticity is understanding you belong to this community you belong to this culture and that you know we claim you um, if you want to claim us great 
but it's really one of those come as you are. Like it's it's a very unique community, the disability community, where you can find a place to fit in. Um, you know, it, there there's definitely a spot for people, but a lot of it is really getting people to be able to see themselves in areas of leadership, seeing themselves as, you know, a, a beacon of strength or as a motivator at, or as someone who is inspirational. Um, right for ways outside of their disability. You know, I mean, you're not just inspirational because you're disabled. You're inspirational because of what you've done, because of the things that you've accomplished, because of the things that you've experienced. Um, and, you know, even getting our own community to be a little bit more aware of that. And, and just, you know, even sharing when people make those impacts on you. Um, because a lot of times people don't know, you know, when they've kind of made a difference in somebody's life and having that feedback really can be very helpful. And that's something that you can do verbally or through, you know, even even a note and those kind of things. Because I know a lot of people want to know, what can I do, you know, to be more authentic, um, you know, or to be more of myself. And it's not something that really someone can tell you what to do. It's 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 a journey. It is. I have a question. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Um, I have a question for you, Catherine. You're autistic. Yeah. Your your brain um, has different wiring, and you get to places that uh, neurotypical people's brains might not get to. Right. To me, that makes you a tremendously valuable resource because, you know, you you talk about um, like how simple it would be to just plant trees that bear fruit, you know, things like that. <laughs> the obvious things to you right. may not be obvious to me. Right. And I have a relative with autism and he's brilliant and he sees around corners I could never see around. Mm -hmm. He is so creative. And so I feel like we have hugely untapped resources in terms of, of, problem solving in our society how do we tap into them i i think the big thing is we have to support each other um a lot of times when when people start doing creative and innovative things i know i can talk from firsthand experience it's really hard to get support with funding um, because you know for example the way my mind works is not in boxes and that's how funding is Funding is literally you are in a certain box, you're in a certain silo. Mm -hmm. So the type of work I do does all disabilities mm -hmm. and all victimizations. So it's literally anyone with disabilities who's a victim of crime, which is a huge population. And nobody really thought that there was a way that you could do that in a systemic way. Well, we did that with forensic interviewing. And what I talk about all the time is A, the funding is not there. So like at a federal level, they don't even have cross-disability funding. You know how ridiculous that is? We don't live solitary disability lives. I mean, most of us are like, I have autism, I have anxiety. God knows I probably have a ton of other things, but I leave it up to the viewers to diagnose me. It's going to be fun. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the other part is we really don't have the support, the platform to, to do these things on our own. We, the systems are literally set up to do these things for us. And we are not given the opportunity or the autonomy or the agency to do these things on our own. And when we try, 
the obstacles really have been pretty surprising. Um, and so I think that brings up a really good point. Most of these things affecting the disability community, we can solve these on our own. We don't need other people to solve these issues. We can with the right funding, with the right training, with the right education, and with the right people showing up to the table. That's the other thing is people have to show up. They have to talk. They have to give their perspectives. And like, for example, that the ironic thing is you're like, you know, the, the kind of things that you said about me, but I'm thinking like even on the other hand with Parkinson's, um, one of the protocols that we're doing is interviewing older adults with disabilities, which includes Alzheimer's and dementia. And, you know, interacting with people who can actually start improving support from their own knowledge, from their own experience, that's another thing that's really, really lacking is that a lot of these things are developed without, you know, working within the disability community and having people, you know, be at all different levels of leadership um, and, and not utilizing who's there with us. Like, for example, if I'm going to interview somebody who doesn't speak traditionally through words, I'm going to go, you know, develop a protocol and work with people who don't speak traditionally through words. I'm not going to work with a bunch of people who have a bunch of letters behind their name, who, you know, have written papers about interviewing people with who don't speak, you know, with verbal words and maybe utilize assistive technology or something. So some of it is just even basic. If you want to work with a community, go to that community. You know, like it, it doesn't take a, a, a genius to figure any of that out. And really, and really understanding each of us have our own skill set. Each of us are capable of creating and doing something else. The big issue is A, the fear of failure, which is huge and can be crippling. And B, the support and really just not understanding the systems on how to do it. Um, or, you know, like I said, also really understanding what that looks like. So like for me, I'm doing something on a, on a larger scale surrounding, <laughs> you know, crime victims with disabilities on a national level. but within your own community. I mean, even, you know, for example, advocating for like a domestic violence shelter that, um, you know, is just for people who are deaf. There isn't really one, you know, there, there's, you know, those are, are things that we can do at a community level or learning sign language. Um, so that if your community doesn't have a sign language interpreter, that that's a role that you could potentially be qualified to do if you go through the right, um, things. And, and we do that with the representation. So like, we're the only organization in the nation who has a forensic interviewer whose first language is ASL, which should not be exciting. It's 2023. That should be shameful. But it's also reimagining what our community looks like in different settings, in different topics, in different issues. Um, and so that's, sorry, I apologize for the dog. That's one thing that we've been doing. Chorus. <laughs> Your dog is saying, listen, she's making excellent sense. I think I, I, think I have a child home. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I have to, I have to um, insert a small boast. I have a friend with CP is finishing her PhD at Gallaudet. And so she's taking basically all of her classes in sign language, even though she is mm -hmm. hearing. And um, 
and that's allowing her to get the PhD in in the area of of which she has much passion. So she absolutely knocks my socks off. Hold on, because I had to start over. So which one are we on? The uh, we're on the uh, the relationship. Okay, point. got it. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the next one. So, um, uh, yeah, behavior acting in ways congruent with your own values and needs, even at the risk of criticism or rejection. I think, um, you know, just I was thinking about a point that we brought up about the fear of failure that's sort of tied into this as far as considering criticism and rejection. Um, I think that we have uh, this built-up fear of failure that is built by the world we live in and the culture and certainly paying attention to social media and these ideals of what success and perfection look like we have these ingrown um emotional toenails of what what failure looks like so much so mm -hmm. that it can be paralyzing and uh mm -hmm. and but then we can we can sort of unpack and redefine what failure means and take that out of the equation if we if we redefine what failure is then then we can certainly redefine what success is and not be afraid of it so much i think and i think it also um is a sentiment to uh, if we want to look at this on a faith basis or you know your your the way you morally or ethically look at things and the way things are and you try to uh, assert yourself or share your experiences but somebody's behavior to that is negative and not the kind of thing that you would normally even uh, entertain um that can that's i think other people's fear of the things that maybe were generational and misunderstood from you know growing up or whatever that can cause the wrong kind of behavior and lead to feeling the other person feeling like a failure. I wonder if when you try to be authentic in a certain situation and that receives 
the wrong, well, the wrong kind of, of reactions. Maybe what that's doing is just cluing us in to the fact that that situation or relationship is in a not yet place. Mm. You know, just like, like if you're baking cookies and, mm. and they smell really good and you think, oh, now it's time to eat some cookies and you get them out and they go flop. You know, maybe you got a little impatient. So you put them back in for another three minutes and then they're fine. Um, when people don't receive our authenticity and our truth out of a place of respect and grace, it probably means that they have not yet experienced things in life that have taught them what they need to learn in order to, to meet us where we are. Mm -hmm. I know that every time I had been judgmental of anyone on the face of the earth, I have ended up following in their footsteps. So I try and be very careful. I mean, there are people out there dealing with some really tough stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I was very young, I thought that only losers dropped out of college. Then I went off to college and I dropped out for almost a year because I was burned out because I was trying to be perfect. Talk about inauthentic, right? Um, but what that did was it humbled me and it taught me that that isn't really failure. You know, back when I was young and, and foolish, I thought that dropping out of college meant you, you weren't smart or you didn't work hard, or you didn't have the right priorities in terms of how you used your time. Well, I went off to college and I tried to be there for everybody on Penn State's main campus. There were a lot of people on Penn State's main campus and many of them were unhappy. And many of them wanted to have a sister to, to dump on, frankly. And I was the dumpy. And so, you know, I had to, be humbled and realized that I couldn't be there for everyone. Only God can do that. Um, and I had to learn that I needed people as well as needed to be there for people. I needed a, a sane balance. Um, but I, I do think that when I was in high school and I was so opinionated about so much, it was like God was saying, Oh, okay. So you need to follow in some of, of these footsteps for a while to learn um, how things can be, how, how good, smart, hardworking people can end up in situations that they were not expecting. Mm -hmm. And you also need to learn that none of us is quite good enough, smart enough, hardworking enough, blah, 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 to, um, to be blameless. We're all a bit of a hot mess. We all desperately need yeah. grace. Yeah, that's true. And a sense of humor. <laughs> and um and a willingness to laugh at ourselves. And to to let God do the judging. We're no good at that. <laughs> right. Right. But I look at the 
behavior, the acting in ways congruent with your own values and needs from two different angles. One, from uh, just from an autistic point of view, because that uh, has been very, very interesting in that journey. So, um, you know, you had spoken initially about, you know, one of the symptoms of Parkinson's can be apathy. Um, and taking that piece into account when we're talking about a larger issue of apathy. Well, you know, so there are behavioral traits that are indicative of certain diagnosis. Um, and autism is one that most people at least have some general working knowledge on and social skills um, usually are impacted and, and a lot of other elements. The thing that's interesting is most of the information out there about autism are about males with autism. There really isn't the mm -hmm. same research and knowledge about females with autism. But uh, so a lot of times, especially in, in younger years, I was acting in ways that I thought were congruent to my own values and needs. But the way that I was doing it was really trying to be the loudest person in the room. Um, and not necessarily because I think part of it was I wasn't entirely sure about my own foundation, which comes back to that authenticity, is that a lot of my foundation was built by other people in the way that I thought it was supposed to look. And so a lot of my actions and things kind of went in that same line. So when I kind of started focusing on being authentic, kind of going back and looking at the way that I responded, I know that one of my Achilles heels is like interrupting and it has nothing to do with, you know, my, my point of view being more important than anyone else's. It's just, I get so passionate and involved in the conversation that I really have a hard time self-regulating myself to like, shut the hell up. And so, you know, those are things that I, you know, I'm working on. And it, it's one of those things where it's like in a meeting, you know, if I like interrupt one person, I'm super proud of myself. But then you're also wondering, you know, is that one person like, damn, she interrupted me like that is so rude. And it's like, you know, you don't understand. This is actually a huge improvement for me. <laughs> and so taking those things into account, because when you're interacting in professional settings and things, again, people are coming from different paths and from different backgrounds and interrupting somebody can be taken in a very negative and demeaning way. And, you know, people don't take that into account that look like, you know, I'm not coming from that place. This is actually connected to my disability. Um, and so it's one of those things where you either end up don't talk, you just don't talk because you don't want to be criticized or rejected or misunderstood because that's literally the, you know, the theme of my life. Um, or, you know, you just kind of get so focused on making sure that you're heard that you know the issue is more about the volume not even about the words anymore mm -hmm. and so that all kind of comes back to being kind of secure with who you are and the things that are your values and your needs mm -hmm. um, the other thing that ends up being a big problem when you're dealing with behavior especially in a professional setting is a lot of times if you act in ways that are congruent to your values and needs that is not always going to be something that necessarily everybody else is in favor of, or that is not going to be something that you're going to get funding for, or, you know, a, a good example I think would be, um, 
we do work with law enforcement. We do training. Um, they're part of our multidisciplinary team. A big part of our population within the disability community has a long historical um, account of unfair criminal and, and just even appalling treatment by law enforcement. And statistically, there was a report by NBC News where 50% of all uh, people who are shot and killed by police have, have a disability, which is huge. 50% of all people that are shot and killed by police have a disability. Well, if you think about all of our intersectionalities and all the stereotypes that revolve around disability, there's a reason why sometimes that's not included in the media stories on some of these these events. But that's a really good example where it's like, look, people have different theories around defunding the police, about how law enforcement should um, be interacting. And I think law enforcement would be the first ones to acknowledge that, you know, the system is not working well. It's broken. But no one really knows what to do about it. Um, and then the other element of it is that you have people that have no business being police officers or in any kind of position of power and control. And that's not something that just happened now. You know, this has been ongoing ever since that was created. But it's one of those things where a lot of times you get pressure from outside groups or from within the community as far as look, as a community, you know, we're going to take this position. Are you with us or against us? Well, as long as law enforcement is the, you know, is the rule of law here in the United States, our community is going to be interacting with law enforcement. And as long as that continues, I'm doing training with law enforcement because who am I benefiting by not working with law enforcement? Not the people that they're going to be coming into contact with who need that training to prevent, you know, future, you know, instances of, of you know, promisation and those kind of things. And, you know, the fact is there are people in law enforcement that generally do a good job, that really care. A lot of detectives, especially in, in SVU units that are very, very devoted um, to this work and very, very passionate and, and are in it for all the right reasons. Um, but a lot of times, you know, it's one of those things where you either go with the crowd or you take a stance on your own. And it's not even a for or against people. It's also just doing, you know, what makes the, the most sense for you, for your values and your, your needs. Um, you know, I've been involved in a lot of those cases uh, where people with disabilities have been treated appallingly by police. But, you know, the only way that I can do anything about it as a professional is, yeah, we're coming up with alternative responses. We're working with other organizations. We're trying to do community um, training so that a lot of this stuff would exist within the community, but we also are training law enforcement and that's something we've been consistent on. And so sometimes, you know, the behavior piece is even just kind of standing up for things that you believe in or that you think are right. Um, and again, a lot of times we just always phrase that like it's a good or bad position um, when it doesn't have to be one or the other. It's just look, if our community is going to be interacting with this agency and this is who they are going to contact for help, then we need to work with you to make sure you're, you have as much training as possible to be able to really serve the needs of that person holistically. Um, but, those, but that's also like another example, more from like an upper level field that a lot of times people don't think about. But even, even like, you know, for example, like 
you know, you're walking down the street and, you know, somebody's making a joke and calling someone by a disability slur. Do you say something or do you just walk by because you don't want them to, you know, turn their attention to you? Um, so, I mean, there are ways that this is this is visual at both a, a higher level and just even within our own like daily interactions with people. That's uh, just like uh, we a lot of these topics we talk about sort of uh, dovetail with previous <laughs> topics we talked about, and um, mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, not only about being accountable, but uh, of um, allowing people that grace that we talked about, like the police um, have their within their own ranks have their own people who are inauthentic and they're going to that job because somebody else got them the job they don't necessarily want to be there mm -hmm. or they're going they're using it as an outlet for their own um trauma that they haven't dealt with properly and they're using that as an outlet to take it out on other people, right? So um, it's important to do that work with them and sort of unpack that so that they don't they don't go around uh, unnecessarily traumatizing other people. And put people with disabilities into leadership in those organizations. That will make a big difference. And don't just have them over accessibility and accommodations. I mean, have people with disabilities involved in the work based upon their skill set, not tokenized just as the disability piece. Because that's the other thing is, you know, the reflection of law enforcement, you don't usually see a disability reflection. And so you have an entire agency that is essentially providing services to our community that we don't even really see ourselves in, you know, in their makeup. Um, and so that's something, like I said, where, you know, getting people with disabilities involved in that work on a policy level, you know, on a training level, um, actually, you know, as law enforcement officers or on the flip side, empowering people with disabilities with the funds and supports to come up with more innovative ways that mm -hmm. maybe would be more effective, whether that's community policing or all of those things. Again, there are paths forward. It's just, you know, whether or not, you know, people are really interested in trying to pursue them. But, you know, I think that's the other element. And also, if you're truly trying to be authentic i think if you can't recognize that we all have we're all neurodivergent thinking about all of the things that we all the inventions all the paintings all the you know well not all but a lot of the paintings and a lot of the inventions and a lot of this and that, you know, or people with that had that thought differently and were able to do those things to give you the 
ability uh, of using those things or enjoying those things. So, yeah. And, and we're, I mean, we're talking about it in that context, but think about all the people who currently and have historically resided in facilities who mm -hmm. haven't had updated assessments, who have never really been properly assessed for assistive technology. You have potentially an entire untapped population right. of people who probably have a ton going on inside. Mm -hmm. They're just not able to communicate it in a way right. that we're able to receive right. it. And that is another element is that, you know, we really kind of value people based upon the information we can get from them. We need to flip it around. The issue is, is that if we're not receiving information from someone, it's not with their inability to communicate. It's our inability to receive the information. We just don't have the knowledge or the training or the education yet to be able to receive that information. Right. Um, but that's another element is that, you know, we literally have a chunk of our population that's in facilities that, you know, the, the Department of Justice for all of their statistics around victimization, they don't collect any data from facilities around victimization, none. So right now the statistics of people with disabilities being victimized at a rate of four times higher than people without disabilities, that doesn't even include people in facilities, which is appalling. So you've essentially erased an entire population's experiences. Right. You know, and I, I think that's the other element is that, you know, we also are dealing with a population, a culture that's very fragmented and that we don't always have access to. And, you know, how do you move within that and the d different legal confines and people, you know, guardians and those kind of things as far as making sure people have that autonomy and that ability to live an authentic life? Right. And that, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about previously, is if you don't give people the basic needs, stuff like that, they're not going to have the ability to process those thoughts. They're not going to have the ability to, they're going to be focused on survival. So they're, they're not going to be able to bring those things to the table. And then what ends up being perpetuated is that people assume they don't understand or that they don't know that. Like I had a case recently on someone who was an older adult, it was a sexual assault and they were saying, you know, that this person really wasn't able to um, comprehend certain things. And the issue turned out, it didn't have anything to do with comprehension. This person did have communication disabilities um, and, and did express themselves in a way without um, verbal words. But the the interesting thing is, is that it didn't have anything to do with comprehension. It had to do with concepts. Nobody had actually introduced the concept of crime, the concept of safety, even the concept of sex. I mean, this person had spent their entire lives in a facility. And based upon those concepts not being introduced, if someone doesn't introduce a concept to you, you're not going to understand it. Not because you can't, but because you need that context. And so what a lot of times we do, especially for people in facilities, we don't give them any context. We don't give them anything, but we constantly put them in positions that will validate the fact that they are not understanding what we're saying 
which takes the responsibility of having to communicate off of us. And so, you know, those are things that, again, when we're talking about being authentic, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, also understanding we live in a culture where it would be great if, if your only role really was looking out for yourself. But unfortunately, we are a culture that is a community where, you know, our history is, is in facilities. We have a history of having to look out for each other because no one else will look out for us. So when we talk about people in facilities, you know, they are, you know, part of us. That is our group. And if we're not advocating for them, nobody else is going to be advocating for them. I mean, the federal government isn't even getting data on them. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where we have a shared burden, um, you know, under the disability label, but that burden wasn't created by us. It was put on top of us uh, by, you know, people who are not disabled. But that's another element that we really just don't talk a lot about is how better to integrate people who are in facilities into our community so that we still have that connection and that bond um, and they still feel that cultural connection. I like that. I wanted to go back and you mentioned about, you know, you, you feel like sometimes you might talk a lot or whatever. Well, I appreciate that for one, because, you know, having, you know, having the disability I have uh, intertwined, you know, with the, um, like, see, like right now, I can't even think of the word. What am I, the, huh? No, aphasia, yes. Thank you. Uh, along with the aphasia, you know, you're able to know exactly where I'm going with something. And Mark does the same thing. And a lot of other people do. do. I think Anne has done some too. But <laughs> it's awesome. It's like I have all these great ideas, all these things that I want to implement and all that, but I don't always have the word on top of my head. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely levels of, you know, of that, you know, but no, it's not always, you're not able to ever come up with the word. It, oh, it's there. And I have a lot surrounding that word, but I just can't think of that word. Yeah, and, and that particular like frustration, like you said, that's on one word. I mean, try like, you know, that's just an excellent example of just even imagining what it's like to literally live in the facility, to see the same people over and over again. And you're stuck on one word, but for some people, they're just, they can't get that information out in the way that it can be received. And that's how their entire lives are in that state of frustration. Um, and so, you know, it, it kind of, you know, the one thing that, you know, we have a very innate ability is sometimes really being able to slow down and seeing how this stuff affects other people because we're more sensitive to it because it's happening to us. What I have noticed, at least for me, is I'm usually much more comfortable interacting with people with disabilities um, just because, you know, there is a level usually of being authentic because, you know, uh, 
at a professional level, that means, you know, a lot of times there are people who are not out with their disability who I interact with, but a lot of people who are, um, it, it's just, you know, I think what makes it kind of cool is that like, I'm very well aware of all my weaknesses, my entire life that's been pointed out to me. So I have no question about, you know, where I'm weak. Um, but one of the pieces of that that's been good outside of, you know, at some point you're just kind of like, okay, I get it, um, is that you, it's very, very clear where you need your supports. Now, whether or not you put those supports in or you get additional knowledge in those areas or those kind of things, that's that's one thing. But the nice thing is once you're completely aware of what your supports are, it's so much easier to do the work because you know exactly what you're missing. And you know exactly, like you can pick that up from other people who have those um, qualities and those kind of things too. There's just kind of like an unspoken kind of kinship, I think, within the disability community where it's kind of like, look, you know, I kind of feel like there's a lot of conversations and things that, that could happen that just is going to occur organically because people are just more collaborative. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, I know I've encountered a lot of territorial issues within disability. People really want, you know, attention for the thing that they do and all of that. And luckily, I'm in a field where my response is there's enough abuse to go around. So I'm not I'm not going to be territorial. We can share. Um, I, I would be completely fine if, if, you know, there was no need for my type of work ever again. But right. I, think, I think that's the other thing is, is that like, we really do support each other. Um, when we find those kinships and we find those mm -hmm. kind of connections within the disability world, that's we kind right. of have our own little family um, of people who we know we can trust, who we know will kind of look after us. But that's because we kind of share um, kind of the same cultural backgrounds. And that's something I don't think we focus enough on on the disability community because people automatically think of culture as racial or ethnic or, or all of those. And, and no. we fit that, you know, disability is part of that cultural piece, but it also gives us a really wonderful opportunity to get more knowledgeable about all of our intersectionalities. I mean, I, I'm always disappointed every year when Olmsted comes out because I am hoping that this that it will be the year that somebody does something really big and focuses yeah. on the fact that the person who started Olmsted Act, you know, who got us all out of the institutions, that was Lois Curtis. Lois Curtis had intellectual <laughs> developmental disabilities, paranoid schizophrenia. She started the lawsuit from inside a facility. Do you know how difficult? it is to get a facility to like, you know, even like respond to like a client's right. letter. You did, you filed a lawsuit in a facility. That is courage. You know, the type of retaliation that probably occurred in some level that she can't prove and all of that, she was completely on her own. And, you know, we got our independence from institutions from a black mentally ill uh intellectually developmentally disabled black i mean like that's amazing nobody else can claim that why are we not screaming that from the hills because that literally defines who we are though that's the person that we are we are the ones that are stuck in the facilities and we are going to change these things for everybody else at our at 
our own sacrifice at exploiting ourselves, you know, and she, she did that. And, you know, it's one of those things where we didn't get, you know, our freedom from institutions, from systems or from, you know, non-disabled people. We literally got our freedom from somebody mm -hmm. in the institution who was strong enough to file that lawsuit. And trust me, no one was really supporting her in that. Right. I mean, that that's powerful. If you want to talk about authentic, you know, that's who we come from. Those are the stories that we need to be telling because that's our history. And most of our history that we talk about is so negative and paints us, you know, in this really kind of vulnerable light. But we were like, we were the ones that literally were the change agents. And we weren't changing it just from the outside of these facilities. We were changing them from inside, um, which is almost impossible. Um, but I think that, you know, that particular uh, Lois Curtis really is, is a great um, symbol of who we are or who our potential can be as a community and what we're able to achieve. And that was one person. Uh, she didn't have, you know, college degrees. She didn't have a ton of money. She didn't have influential parents um, or family members. She was like, look, I shouldn't be all locked up in here. I should be out like everybody else. And so should all of you. So I'm not going to just get myself out. We're all going together. And we need to get back to that. Right. I'm so thankful for people like that. It, it certainly gives people like Mark and I the the will and the you know the want to push ahead with making those things more accessible and more understood and more known. You know, uh, <laughs> you know we we strive for that. We really do, and it's just. <sighs> You know, it's it's so hard to understand that people don't appreciate it as much. You know, uh, and <laughs> how but, how do you say? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, sorry for interrupting, but <laughs> I I kind of wanted to cut off that thought process. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, trying to be authentic people, it's not our business to care what they, whether they think good of us or bad of us or, you know, or really give two licks about what they don't want. You know, we're, we're in the business of changing people's attitudes and hopefully the world and they could take their business elsewhere. <laughs> well, and Mark, you know, historically, a lot of times people who have acted in ways that were, you know, congruent to their own values and needs um, did experience criticism and rejection at some point historically. And as time evolves, you know, history remembers them differently. So a lot of times, you know, the way that you may appear at one point in your life, you know, there may be a different perspective on that at a different stage. So it's also one of those things that as you grow, it, it's like that Maya Angelou quote, you know, when you know better, you do better. 
Um, and so it's really a lifetime. You don't just become authentic. It's one of those, it reminds me of the Velveteen Rabbit. It's like, we're all shooting for that, where someone will pick us up and say, you know, you are what it's like to be real. And at that point, your nose is going to be rubbed off. You're going to have tears all over. You're going to be missing your stuffing. Your eyes going to be, you know, hanging out by a piece of string. But that's what you're going for is to be right. that at the end, because that means that you've actually lived and that right. you meant something to someone. Because in the end, we all really just want to love and be loved. Right. And um, there tons of examples of people who really made some significant change in the world and were just persecuted for it. So if we use that as a model, if people criticize or reject us all over the place, we're going in the right direction. That's true. You know, it's it's the, the, world, the world that's going to tell us Oh, stay safe where you are. You know, you don't want to be rejected or criticized too much. You just want to get by. And uh, we have to do our level best not to fall into that trap. Yeah, and Mark, and, and it's been my experience that even if you follow the path that you're told to, or you do what you're told to do, you're still going to be criticized or rejected. So, you know, my grandmother, she, you know, uh, my background is Amish and she came out of the Grace Brethren Church. And uh, one of one of my most favorite sayings of, of hers is, you know, when it comes down to what people think of you or, or all of that, her response always was, let them talk. They're going to talk anyways. Let them talk. <laughs> if you have time to sit there and listen to them, you don't have enough going on. So you need to find something else to keep yourself occupied. <laughs> I love it. You know, I mean, that's what it really comes down to. People are going to talk about you. So, you know, the difference is, is that, you know, how you respond to that, you can't do, you can't control anyone. You can't, you know, do, you can't change things like that. What you can do is control how you respond to how people treat you and what people say to you. And again, that comes back to, can you look yourself, if, you, if your goal is to just look yourself in the mirror and be proud of the person looking back, I think that's that's a goal that you know if we all set that that's something we can achieve um and to be honest you know i think that's the highest goal that we really could attain because really yes. it comes down to you know we are everything that we talk about weaknesses and all of that that's something that's been put onto us something that we've been taught and you know mm -hmm. if we really go down to being authentic it's like you know accepting yourself exactly who you are, kind of like what you said, warts and all. And, you know, recognizing that that is what your perfection is, you know, that this is how you're supposed to be. Um, and, you know, not saying that, you know, like for me, I can't run around and like constantly interrupt people all over the place because at some point no one's going to listen to me. So it's also understanding, look, I have different aspects of my disability that I have to be authentic about. And there are things I need to change in order to accommodate other people or in order to make sure other people feel comfortable and safe with me. Because if I'm constantly interrupting someone and they feel demeaned and disrespected, and that's not at all where I'm coming from, 
you know, that's going to affect that relationship. And so, you know, there also is when you have a disability that, you know, does have certain social elements to it, understanding what you're comfortable with, you know, making some concessions or accommodations on and what you're not. For some people, they may not want to make any kind of accommodations. Cool, you don't have to. But for me, in order to get some things accomplished, I have to, you know, compromise on certain things. But again, there's that disability aspect where, you know, someone may take something as far as from a totally different perspective, when in fact, the fact I'm interrupting you has something to do with my disability and I'm really trying to work on it. Yeah. Um, people who don't have that disability lens, they would never consider it. You know, that's an interesting point. Um, I just saw a friend today um, who has a, a disability and um, she was walking through her house and her leg buckled and she apologized automatically. And, um, and I said, why are you apologizing? And, and, and she said, well, it wouldn't have been good if I'd fallen would have made everyone uncomfortable. And I said, you, you know that you're apologizing for something you have no control over. Right. And, you know, it's not like you can say, I have learned from my mistake and I will not do this right. negative thing next time. It's just part of what you're struggling with. And then we got into a really good discussion on how we're kind of programmed to apologize for things we have no control over. And so um, she is now wearing um, an oversized um, band, <laughs> elastic band around her, her arm. And um, like some people put money in a swear jar, <laughs> she is going to start plucking that thing and letting it snap to get her own attention when she is apologizing for something she hasn't chosen yeah. and she's doing it defensively so nobody will criticize her or think less of her. Right. That's part of the unconscious bias. We've been programmed to think we need to apologize for our disability or being less than or not being able to do something or you know, not being able to say a word when you want to, those kind of things. But that's an unconscious bias that the disability community is having a tough time with. So if you also talking about authenticity and recognizing that that's an issue mm -hmm. and then trying to authentically break that cycle and get those thoughts out of your head, that's a big thing too. That's true. I think I'm probably going to have to put one on my arm. Um, I'm always <laughs> a, apologizing to people um, because the meds that I take for Parkinson's, uh, one of them makes me very sleepy. I have sleep attacks. Mm -hmm. And um, it can seem as if I'm disinterested in what's going on around me. But it's not. It's like you know, somebody takes a switch and, and, um, you know, it's very much affected my driving. There are certain times of day when I won't drive anymore yeah. because I've had, you know, 
a tendency to to fight exhaustion when um when trying to keep control of the car and i just can't put anybody at risk right because of the sleep attack so anyway um you know it's it's funny i i found myself thinking as a result of this discussion um about how when my life is over i want to have all the organs anybody can possibly use um scooped up and distributed <laughs> i just think that's the most joyful thing i can imagine and i don't have the best eyes in the world but if you don't have <laughs> eyes that work at all eyes that work with with glasses or contact lenses well okay i'm temporarily um um on the other side of having the cataracts out so i don't know which ends up i can't read up up like this anymore but um anyway i just want to have all of me used by people who need it and then that got me thinking about the fact that the challenge for me in this life before my organs and skin and eyeballs get distributed <laughs> And here's an eyeball for you, and here's some skin for you, and yeah, anyway, yeah, good old Oprah. Um, I can do the same thing with my mistakes, you know, because honestly, the things that I have been proud of in this life are no big deal, and they haven't really been used very much. Um, the things that I've been most ashamed of in this life the um the disasters have been of use because those i can offer up like like organs i don't need anymore like you candy know, to bless yeah. and encourage people who who feel like it's the end of the world you know what stupid thing they did or or you know being called out on the carpet for this or that you know i have so i am so rich in mistakes it's and not as good. am i as am i um, wonderful well but i think i think the thing about i think the thing about the mistakes piece is that you know that it really ends up being something that ends up um being used to hey, help Catherine, your your break your uh sound like you're in the tunnel right now can't understand you now can you i'm not it's still it sounds a little bit muted not fully muted but i can still hear, hear you all right how about that that's a little bit better yeah, that sounds huh i don't know what the problem is okay i won't move so I think the other thing that's really big about the mistakes, kind of like what you were saying, um, is again, like our generations also are very, very rich in knowing how to get back up. So that's something that we bring to the table. We know what it's like to fall down. And for some of us, we know what it's like to stay down for a minute, but we know how to get back up. And that is a that is a strength um because not everybody knows that 
Um, and I think that kind of goes into the behavioral aspect too, that we also, as part of being authentic, um, supporting others and being authentic. So yeah. when we are around other people that are visibly struggling, whether they're having a panic attack or they're, you know, searching for a word and they need some additional help or they're interrupting everybody around them, like me, you know, we also need other, you know, people from the disabled community to kind of step in and to help you know, to either redirect or to, you know, be like, oh my gosh, you know, you know, don't feel weird. I had a panic attack last week. You know, at least mm -hmm. you didn't do this. There's a really great show. I don't know if you've seen it on Amazon. I think it's called Troop Zero. Um, Allison Janine and uh, Viola Davis are in it. And it's about oh, this my goodness. girl who's kind of labeled a misfit. Um, her name is Christmas. And there's this one scene in it, and, and you know, it, it's geared towards families, but there's this one scene in it where she has also a problem with um, urinating on herself when she gets really anxious and, and those kind of things. So they're doing, of course, a big production, and of course, you know, she ends up urinating on herself. And every single one of her little friends up there starts peeing on themselves too, so that she's not up there in front of this huge audience with urine on herself by herself. And I think like, if you, you should watch the movie, but I think that is kind of a concept that we need to embrace. Instead, we should not let anyone with a disability to be up there on their state, on the stage by themselves. We right. should be there right. with them. And what, what is it called? Uh, Troop Zero. Okay. I'll have to check that out. That sounds that's wonderful. What it's called. But it, it's really a good example of empowerment and community. And of course, we want to empower people with disabilities to, you know, do their own thing, to stand on their own. But there's also that time when we need to come together and we need to support people. And a lot of times when I see people struggling, a lot of times the disability community kind of moves back, especially if someone is labeled behavioral, which I hate that term, but like, mm -hmm. Nobody wants to necessarily don't be get me started on that term. Right, right. But I mean, like, and, and I know you've all seen it. Like, there are certain disabilities that people oh, yeah. visually remove themselves from. And a lot of that, again, comes to our own internal bias. And, you know, why is it that we're so afraid of being associated with this person? You know, or why do we want to make sure that we're separate from this person or that we really make sure that we talk more about ourselves to show that we're different from we're not disabled like this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also another conversation that we kind of need to talk about is kind of this, you know, we do have this superiority complex within the disability community where some disabilities are more superior to the other, but it all comes down to bias. Um, and again, you know, the, the whole concept so funny to me because, you know, if they ever wanted to round us all up, nobody cares who we are. Like, we're all going to literally be in the same <laughs> together. But like, the way that people really tried to differentiate, differentiate themselves and make themselves at a higher, you know, so, social stratification level than everyone else, it's just, yeah. it's stupid. And all mm -hmm. your, you know, it's kind of like, those kind of situations, I always kind of hope that the person involved mm -hmm. sits down and thinks mm -hmm. like, okay, like the issue isn't that person. Why am I responding to this person this way? Because obviously there's some self-hatred 
or some bias or something unreasonable. Mm -hmm. And we yeah. don't really do a good job calling each other on that and really mm -hmm. addressing, um, you know, that there are people in the disability community that we're cool with claiming and there's others that we don't want to ever be associated with. And unfortunately, you know, that type of, of view is kind of what keeps us siloed, that we really are one of the same community. And some of that is interacting with people who are different from us. Right. Yeah. And talking about the superiority complex, you know, within the disability community kind of goes back to, you know, the whole idea of if you're, you know, you feel like you need to divide things to have a better world, then you're part of the problem, not the solution. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's how you, that's how people have historically been controlled. I mean, mm -hmm. in facilities, you know, yeah. you control people by giving them extra food or by you know giving them extra access to a tv or something if they tell on their roommates or if they say they didn't see anything or you know i mean this is something that has gone on forever um, and again we just haven't really put any language around it and talked about it um but you know they're all of this is just interconnected and i'm just so glad you guys are kind of scratching at the surface and starting to have uh, these conversations. Yeah. And, uh, and we're grateful for you, Catherine, yes. and for joining mm -hmm. us for this. Yeah. So should we tackle the last topic and then we'll be done? Yeah, we're, we're coming up from three hours here. I know, I know. Um, that's okay, though. That's that's okay. Yeah. We're, we're getting really some fun. good. We're talk, uh, further to the last point that Catherine um, made, you know, um, it's something which is very human problem. I mean, we've been seeing this since we were wee little tots in the playground. You know, it's the kids who feel the deepest insecurity, who cling to power, and who are the bullies and loudest voices in the playground, right? No. Yeah. And then those same people end up in <laughs> sometimes positions of power that have effect over a lot of people's lives. Um, and, and, you know, I think I think there there's that element. But again, that is even more of the reason to get us in positions of leadership um, so that, you know, at least our voices is part of the conversation. But, you know, a lot of, I mean, at the very beginning of our lives, you know, our, you know, the most important people, whether it's family or, you know, some other important person in your life, um, one of your first learning um, experiences is, you know, ends up being differences, ways that your body's different from your parents or ways that, you know, your relationship is different than, you know, somebody that you saw on TV. Um, and there is so much focus in our society on differences. And those are the things that we spend so much time talking about and focusing on just more and more ways to show that we just don't have enough in common to really be able to 
have a basic conversation. And, you know, I just wish that we would flip that conversation and focus more on similarities and starting those basic conversations. Because all this time we waste on our differences, um, you know, those conversations are important, but they are supposed to go into action and they stick just with these meetings and with these conversations. And it's like generation after generation, we're having the same conversations. It's like the very definition of insanity. And everybody yeah. <laughs> acts like this is the first time we've talked about this. It's like, right. no, like literally go all the way back to like right. in the moors and salting the earth. I mean, you want to talk about getting rid of people because they're different. We can go way back in the society. Uh, yeah. Uh, but that, you know, and that's something, again, we're part of the society. We buy into this. If we are part of these discussions mm -hmm. that primarily focus on differences, what are we offering? Are we offering conversations that focus on similarities? Are we creating those spaces? I know that we, you know, my organization isn't enough. We're trying to do better at that. But, you know, again, it comes, you know, there are some elements of personal responsibility. Are you spending most of your time talking about differences or are you spending most of your time talking about similarities? If you're talking about similarities, you're in the minority because everything you're around, you're constantly bombarded with differences, how different, how apart we all are, um, you know, and that does serve some people's agendas. Um, it just doesn't serve ours. Uh, Crystal, do you want to throw up the last one? There? Um, so this last point, which by the way, we're We've pulled all these po discussion points from a from an article I think we got from Psychology Today. Psychology Today, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. but the link for that is in the uh, in the show, no show notes if anyone wants to look at that. But the last point here was about relational orientation uh, and how we can keep authentic by having close relationships with and encouraging or uh, keeping sticking with people we can be open with and honest with um mm -hmm. what do you want to say about that well taking the time to find out who those people are because a lot of times i think we automatically assume that those close relationships have to be people who are already in our circle or people who look like us and think like us and do what we do. And then, you know, in a lot of my close relationships, they end up being people who are drastically different uh, than me. And I need that. I need other perspectives and other viewpoints. I need to know a perspective that is not my own, that doesn't come from, you know, everything that is me. And that really helps shape, you know, just even basic thoughts and just daily interactions with people. But I think that's another thing is, is that, you know, we really have to also be purposeful. If everybody in your Facebook list or in your friend list looks exactly like you, you know, how authentic are you really being? Or are you only being authentic with who you feel comfortable with? And how do you know you don't feel comfortable with other people? 
if you don't kind of, you know, reach out and kind of put yourself out there. Um, mm -hmm. The openness and honesty, though, you just that's something where, you know, you kind of also have to have that trust in place, too. Um, just because you may have a close relationship with somebody, that doesn't mean that they're willing to be open and honest with you. Again, it might not be from a bad place. You don't know what people have been through and they may not be at a place where they can have those type of discussions. And that doesn't mean that you don't have a close relationship. It just means that, you know, you also have to re be respectful. People are on different paths. It's the not yet thing. Yeah. And that not yet thing is important to me because it keeps me from writing off anybody. And from writing myself off, too. Sometimes I'm not yet ready for a certain friendship. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to, to, you know. Get there. Yeah. I mean, that's what happened with my husband and me. He's the only person I ever decided I would never marry. Ah! <laughs> We've been married 41 years now. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. But I had some, some, um perspectives that that needed time to finish growing and and um i have been very very blessed in marrying my best friend and and no oh. kidding i have it in my journal you know sometimes mm -hmm. he looks at me like you'll eventually realize that it was me all along and i wrote never <laughs> so yeah that was yeah. one of my more impressive moments <laughs> Well, and also close relationships, that looks different at yeah. different stages of your life. You know, what yeah. I would have thought of as close relationships in my 20s, mm -hmm. um, some of those people are still around. But, like, relationship takes on a different uh, meaning for me at this stage in my life. I don't care yes. about the number of people. I care about, mm -hmm. you know, the quality of the person. Right. Um, because, you know, I also, I have a lot of obligations with work and with my personal life. And I really kind of, uh, believe if you're going to be friends with someone, you actually like try to be a real friend. So I don't do like the Facebook, you know, like I have a hundred right. friends. Like I try to keep, uh, you know, with my close friends, maybe around five, but you mm -hmm. also outside of that, where you have those close relationships that allow you to be open and honest. You also are, it's a transitional relationship or transactional relationship. Whereas you're also asking them to keep you open and honest and literally right. calling you out when you're not being authentic. Right. Sometimes we can't see that we ourselves. Don't see it. That's and true. so it's important to have people around you who are not just like, Oh, Crystal, you are wonderful. Everything you do is wonderful. You know, there's nothing wrong with right. you. Right. Okay. Someone occasionally that can be like, what the hell are you doing? There you go. <laughs> what is wrong with you? You know who you are. Now cut it out. You know, yeah. you need people to remind you of who you are. And it needs to be, you know, I've always, again, my grandmother was very influential as far as you pick friends who are going to be a reflection of you. You surround yourself with people who um, it doesn't, they don't have to have the degrees. They don't have to have the experience or the professionalism. You surround yourself with people that you would want to spend time with, mm -hmm. you know, people who you trust, people who you know are kind. So 
you know, those are the elements. And a lot of times we focus on other external things, like how much money somebody has or what their position is or where they went to school and those kind of mm -hmm. things. And what really matters um, really comes down to how that person treats people when, when you know, other people are not around. Um, so, you know, it's one thing to talk it's another thing to walk the walk. And I, you know, I love the talking piece. I show up and do that, but um, I don't really listen to the talk. I'm more interested in seeing what you do because, you know, that, that's how you, yeah, that's how, I mean, that's essentially how you find out who people really are is when they're right. in those positions where they have to take a stand or they don't. And then, you know, you know, um, but sometimes it can be very disappointing and you know when you think you have that close relationship that's open and honest and then you know all of a sudden that friend or whoever you know ends up letting you down but you know again that doesn't mean that you don't keep on searching for those relationships because the whole essence really of, of the human experience is through that connection mm -hmm. um and so it's something that you're not really doing for other people you're doing it because it helps you be a better person Exactly. And sometimes even very valuable and wonderful relationships go through an incredibly ugly period. And, um, and usually it seems to be when one or the other um, person involved in it is going through a growth spurt, a change in perspective, and the, the two people have not yet learned how to communicate successfully about the perspective changes and um and how they can each learn from what is going on but i have found that if i just don't let myself get judgy and don't get myself in a place of defensiveness and don't make up my mind that it's easier to stop caring for the person then I end up learning all sorts of cool stuff along the way and stuff that I needed to learn anyway, just to be a yes. better person. Like the other day, a friend of mine who I've been helping out because she's dealing with a lot of situational challenges. Um, she gave me a call and um, said, don't bring over, you know, a bunch of stuff right now because um, my housemate is moving out and it's too confusing and blah, blah, blah. And, I said, okay, that's fine. Um, and then I checked my, my messages and she had said the same thing. And I got the impression that she had talked to me and then she didn't trust that I had heard her respectfully. And so she was making sure like, don't bring the stuff, you know? It's craft stuff. It's nothing very exciting, you know, but not, not stuff that goes for high prices in New York or anything. Um, anyway, <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I actually did something I've never done before in a friendship. I just called her and I said, can you help me understand what's going on? Because I get the impression that you're angry with me as if I'm not listening to you respectfully. And when you asked me to not bring the craft stuff over, I agreed immediately. So can you help me understand? Well, it turns out she had written the message and then she thought, I better make sure since Anne doesn't always check her messages that I, I call her and tell her. So she had done that and that completely changed the context. 
And suddenly it didn't seem the least bit angry. It just felt thorough. And we headed off a, a potential problem by just asking sensible questions. So one of the things I am trying to do is make sure that with my friends who have more challenges in life, as well as the friends who are less challenged by their lives at this point, if my feelings start to get hurt or I feel confused, I am asking specific questions like, help me understand what's going on. I think I may have missed something. Um, are you upset with me? Did I do something to offend you? And most of the time, the reply I get is, no, why do you think that that's the case? And then I tell them, and then we get it all straightened out and all is well. And we've each learned something. So that, that has been a really huge help. I have recently started doing that myself for that same reason. Is that right? Um, well, and because a lot of times when you're communicating through email and text, right? sometimes like, you know, <laughs> it's hard, you know, to really understand, like, is someone being serious? Is this sarcastic? Right. You know, so I'll clarify no, just because no. I don't want to assume and off because of the type of work I do, I like to validate everything. But you bring up a really good point. And is that like, we also aren't, you know, there isn't like a friendship training 101. So a lot, you know, right. it, it's also one of those things where people kind of learn about how to be a friend based upon their early relationships. And sometimes those aren't like real friends. And yeah. so, you know, it's also one of those things where, you know, you're understanding and looking at relationships because sometimes you outgrow relationships That's um, and it's not like a good thing or a bad thing. It's just, you know, it was at a certain time in your life and now, you know, it, it's, it remains in that certain time in your life. But that's another thing too is that you know not every relationship's the same you can't be the same friend to everybody and so what it takes is that interaction that connection to get to know that person so that you can find out you know how can you best support them as a friend and how right. can they best support you as a friend right. um and you know a lot of that starts with kind of like what you said and doing those check-ins making sure that you know, because, and you do that because you care about people. You don't want someone to be misinterpreted or for someone to feel that, you know, something happened that really didn't, wasn't the intention or something like that. Exactly. That's another element that we don't really talk about is that, you know, not every friendship is the same and there's mm -hmm. different types of friends. There's different ways to have those friendships, but a lot of times our introduction into friendship is not healthy, it's not equal. A lot of times it's an ableist relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't really kind of look back on that and see if any elements of that relationship is still continuing in our current, you know, relationship with our friends. Right. Because I mean, if you're in the facility, you don't even have friends, you have peers. You know, I mean, look at how we even define relationships. And I know in mental health, it was uh, for a long time consumer. I know that was also the term in intellectual and developmental disability. People didn't usually say mm -hmm. friend, it would be consumer, all of these institutionalized mm -hmm. forms of language. And it's one of those things where a lot of people with disability don't really have a concept of what is a real friend because mm -hmm. you know they haven't had the autonomy the agency and the independence to actually explore that on their own mm -hmm. 
Anything else, Mark? No, I don't think so. <laughs> How about like there's guys? nothing else to talk about. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we should have brought our sleeping bags. <laughs> then we could have talked what? until we fell asleep. Yeah, you no, know, can't the box. contribute something to the conversation, <laughs> but that's about it. Yeah. It's been so much fun. It always yeah, has with you two. And Catherine, you are amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, I've enjoyed hanging out with you too, Anne. I'm oh, like a huge you. fan of Crystal and Mark. So usually oh, if I are. ever hear from them and I'm available, I always oh. want to work with them. And I actually need to talk Absolutely. to them about something I want to set up with yeah, them. I, I, I need to this. to you too. So. Yeah, I love this space and I love these topics. The one Me thing, too. though, I had wanted to ask you guys, Mark and Crystal, have you guys thought about reaching out to the SILs, the Centers on Independent Living, and seeing if they'll share your podcast with their members? Um, that, that's actually something I have to take care of this Good. week. <laughs> so last week was really, really busy, and maybe we after all the fires and yeah. stuff. So. Okay, I was just thinking because I was like, you know, you guys really should be putting this on those listservs because there's mm -hmm. a ton of people that would love this topic. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe after we're done uh, with this, you two can hang around and we can mm -hmm. talk okay. about that or talk about other stuff. Yeah, but, for uh, sure. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I love when we have these conversations. It's always so insightful. And so many people need to hear these conversations. And it's a sentiment to us being authentic and sharing this stuff. So, so yeah, thank you uh, for joining us. So uh, right before we end here, uh, we're going to try something new. I apologize <laughs> if this Hold cuts on. you off, but uh, uh, we're going to throw up some like, subscribe, and hit <laughs> oh the button. Make okay. sure that anyone who has managed to stick around for three hours, um, <laughs> that, that you... Uh, like, subscribe, or on depending on whether you're watching us on Facebook or YouTube. And we're going to throw up our uh, well, end credits for about 30 seconds. Well, also, if you guys have any comments on things we discussed and further, you know, enlighten us on your opinion on stuff and your uh, look and what you've learned. But please comment and let us know. Yeah. Okay. Bye, Thank everyone. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye.